Hey, you ever wonder what goes on in the mind of a stripper? A male stripper, to be precise. If your answer is not much, well, have I got a caller for you. This is a uh, caller who had a lot to say about his history as a male stripper and had questions. Has it kind of made me lazy and unmotivated because everything kind of gets handed to me on a silver platter? It really is a fascinating look into the world and sexual possibilities of male stripping, and uh, we did talk quite a bit about motivation and how to get the next phase of your life going when you're stuck in a kind of Groundhog Day whirlpool of sexual comfort zone. So a very, very interesting call, and I certainly appreciate that caller. And then we had a caller. She's been on the show before. She's uh, in university, and she's having some challenges with her professors when it comes to what she considers some of the heavily status indoctrination that goes on in uh, higher education. And we broke down some of their arguments and talked about some of the ways to handle that, because that is quite a challenge. It was a challenge for me, and I think it's even worse now in the 22 plus years since I was last in grad school. So some great calls, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out, fdrurl.com slash Amazon. If you're doing any shopping, fdrpodcast.com, please share the site, share the knowledge, share the wisdom, and share your time, resources, and cash if you have any lying around that you'd like to help us out with. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. Thanks again so much. All right. Well, up first today is Usman. He wrote in and said, for 10 years now, I've been living comfortably, getting by, working as a male stripper. I know I'm talented and capable of more. However, I only do the bare minimum, which is all I need to pay my bills and get laid. I am burning inside to do more. My ideas are endless, but I always quit and revert back to this lifestyle every time I try something new and ambitious. Why am I so damn lazy? That's from Usman. Welcome to the show. Oh, hey, Usman. How you doing? Yeah. Hey, Steph. How you doing? Well, thanks. Um, I feel that this should be a webcam session. And of course, <laughs> I every morning wake up and say, why don't I just... Make my living as a male stripper. I mean, women like famous guys, and they like muffins, I should be said. So um, I, uh, I understand that temptation if you're very, very your, deeply. If you're looking for your big break, I can help you out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, how did you get into the field? Um, well, actually, that started, uh, I was in my early 20s, and uh, I, I actually grew up an obese kid. And so for me, getting healthy and getting fit was a big, big deal for me. And then I was in my early 20s, and... Uh, one of my first nightlife jobs was being a bouncer at a strip club where girls were dancing. So I was this, you know, big guy, and uh, I was working with all these women, and I kind of got very comfortable with the nightlife. And uh, a friend of mine was a bartender or a waiter at a male review. And uh, at the time, I didn't really know anything about male reviews. Uh, he kept asking me to come join, and I never joined him for the male review. Uh, what? Me and him did go out for a Wait, party. sorry, he wanted you to come and join him looking at the male dancers? Well, he, he was a waiter for the, for the show. So he was a waiter, and there was male dancers. And for these male, you know, in these male reviews, it's, it's an all-woman audience. It's a bachelor party thing. So you're, Boy, being, being, a waiter, being a waiter at a male strip joint must be like being the bassist in a hot band. You know, <laughs> you, you really are picking up the leftovers, but all right, keep going. <laughs> hey, I mean, he was, going, he was coming home with good money, and, and, and it's, it's, it's really – you're a celebrity for those 90 minutes that show is happening. I mean, it's just the weirdest world that you enter. It's a bizarre world. So he's there. He's, he's, he's having a good time. He's making money. He keeps trying to convince me to do it. 
uh, I don't want to do it. And then we go out one night and we go to a club in New York City where there's a, they have like an amateur striptease contest at a very big nightclub. Now I'm in my early 20s. I'm still a little bit of wallflower coming out of this whole uh, fat boy, you know, mentality. And uh, so he, he convinces me to do the contest and uh, I do it. And so men and women, they both get up on stage and they both strip and the audience applause decides the winner. So me and a girl actually ended up tying and I went home with uh, just under 500 bucks cash. And that wasn't the best part. The best part was as soon as I walked off the stage, all those women that I was afraid to kind of approach were all running up to me, asking me for my phone number, trying to buy me drinks. And so I was like, this is pretty cool. I got right, because they, they got a real sense of your rippling virtues. <laughs> exactly. Okay. This is, this is what right. New York women have to offer. Man meat 101. They're like piranhas on a, on a wounded cow. Okay. It's, it's, so it. much, it's so much worse than most. I think uh, stepping into that world, you really realize how superficial it really is. I mean, yeah. women are really just as bad as men. They just hide it very well. So, mm-hmm. you know, so, so that's, that's kind of where it opened me up to the whole thing. And I thought to myself, I can do this. And so I, uh, I joined the company that my friend was working for. Uh, this was probably around 2005 and, uh, it was a very, well, no, no, hang on, hang on. So for you, when you went up on stage, mm-hmm. I assume that, I mean, you're obviously a good looking and, and ripped guy. So when you went up on stage, was there an immediate positive reaction? Because you went from kind of shy to, you know, grinding it out, you know, like uh, Bridget Bardot riding a endangered snake. <laughs> and how did it feel for you that very first time that was there a high? Was there a rush? I mean, your sexual market value went through the roof. And certainly from an R selected standpoint, that's the biggest drug you can get. Is that what happened for you? That's probably exactly what happened for me. I, I, okay. uh, I, I, I've always been the kind of person to, I mean, I'm a, a talkative person. I'm a people person. I love being around people and I enjoy uh, being able to make other people happy and, 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 and being in their company. So you put me uh, you know, in front of an audience uh, for whatever it is. And at the time, I had no idea I wanted to be in front of an audience. So I'm, I'm there in that club and I do that and I relished in being in that spotlight. I enjoyed it very much. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, if, if you're in front of an audience uh, and you love being in front of an audience, let's say you do an hour speech a day. The, the problem is never the hour speech. It's the other 23 hours where you're not getting the audience contact high. Yeah. That is uh, troublesome and, and uh, difficult and feels kind of empty. Yeah, definitely. That, I, I can totally right. agree with that. Uh, it eventually, it evolved into, and that's just the beginning part, but eventually it evolved into uh, becoming a master of ceremonies for the biggest show here in New York, uh, traveling, you know, going to different countries and different cities to perform. And so it all, it all kind of went all over the place, actually. So it, it went from that one little thing into a 10-year on-and-off career. Right. So you, you went to other countries, which is probably why people like Donald Trump are talking about bad trade deals in abs and burns of steel. You know, the abs and burns of steel trade deficiency that the U.S. has uh, is considerable. And you, my friend, are contributing to it. No, but, I, uh, I think I'm helping, actually. I, I think we're getting a lot more hot chicks coming into this country than anything else. I don't know if right. he, I mean, he has sick Joe six pack. Actually, you know what? That's wrong. There's a lot of uh, foreign guys that show up for these shows and they don't speak any English, but they just point at their abs and women throw money and it's that simple. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so you basically quit whatever you were doing before and you went into this professionally, right? Right. I'm- now it's not that easy in terms of, I mean, you really have to maintain, 
you know, obviously low body fat. I assume you're dehydrated from time to time, like I knew an underwear model once who was talking about how he couldn't drink water for two days before a shoot, uh, which was, uh, you know, made him so thirsty. He looked at water like a woman. And um, uh, so it's, you know, there, there's gym time. There's, I mean, there's not, it's not just the, the time doing the show, right? There's other stuff as well associated with it. Yeah, there's definitely, there's a definite investment. I mean, uh, uh, you're, if you, most of the guys that I know, they go into the gym every single day. They're all on top of their diets. Um, it's, there's really no downtime. You kind of have to be like the genetically gifted to get away with a couple of workouts a week and still maintain your six pack abs and me coming from an obese childhood, I've got to work twice as hard to make sure I stay in shape. And, um, so what kind of, um, gym time are we talking about here? Uh, in the beginning for a lot of years, it was, uh, up to two to three hours a day. Yeah. Uh, right. And I mean, I, I love the gym in, in a lot of ways, but, but damn, it can get boring after a while. <laughs> Um, oh look i'm still moving things oh move move some more metal in a dark place Mm. (laughs) so yeah it can get kind of dull i mean i used to do a lot of uh, swimming when i was younger and then eventually i just got tired of listening to nothing but gurgling and boredom and i kind of had to stop this sort of when walkmans came along and you could do something more interesting because you know if you're really working out you can't really chat that much although i did have a gym buddy once and my favorite thing to do was to make him burst out in laughter while he was bench pressing more than he could handle, uh, which was, uh, you know, not always fun, that's but a, fun. That's a, um, that's a dick move. <laughs> that is a dick move. That is a dick move. And uh, I only did it when he was using machines, never when he could injure himself. Ah, okay. Um, but uh, yeah, that was a bit of a dick move. I mean, it's not as bad as tickling him with a boa uh, on the inner thigh, but, you know, it was close. No, that's approved. That That's common. <laughs> <laughs> right. So... Do, is it is it straight guys that you're working with? I assume that there's some gay guys working in there as well. The majority, or I want to say, uh, virtually everybody says that they're straight. Uh, that, but then at the same time, you're going to have a handful of guys that do the gay scene as well. And the gay scene pays a lot more, uh, way, way more. I mean, you, a guy can make easily over a grand to $2,000 a night working in a gay club. And uh, a male review is a 90-minute show. And if you're a killer, you might make like 500 bucks. So, I mean, nice. $500 in 90 minutes is great. Uh, but, I mean, that, and that's not a bad deal, I would say, by any stretch. You could show up for one show a week and you're good for the rest of the week, provided you're not trying to be a millionaire. And then, then there's private parties that you can do. And for every private party you get booked for, it's uh, $100 just for the booking. And that's not including tips. So you can easily walk out of there with two, 300 bucks if you wanted, you know, if, if the girls were tipping well. And they usually do. So it's, it's not a bad deal. A couple of parties a week, maybe one or two shows, and you know, that's all you need. So, Usman, tell me a little bit. I mean, I, I got to imagine that, I mean, obviously, I don't think gay to straight is a choice. But if it were, I would imagine even if you started out straight, looking at these grabby, dimly lit, hysterical, screaming Beatles mad women uh, with their mouths all wide, just waiting for some abd guy to drop a bishop down their throat. Does that give you an odd view of female sexuality after a while? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I, tell, tell me about that. They were on such a pedestal before I started this. They were really, I, I was uh, I was your perfect man, giant, white knight type of guy. I, I really worshipped them. Uh, and not, not, not to the extreme sense, but I really thought highly of them. I thought that there were these precious flowers, these nice girls that really needed to be treated well. And they didn't appreciate vulgarity or aggression or any of this stuff. And I learned very quickly that uh, you know they, they respect the man that pretty much takes control and uh you know they they also respect the physical dominance i mean just having muscles makes such a such a big difference and i never realized that when i was before from before working out until after it's just 
is really something as simple as I mean, you, you approach a girl and, and you're fit. And especially in, the, in, in that context, like I said, it's, a completely, it's completely the other way around. I mean, you go to a nightclub, you go to a bar, you go anywhere in the world, and you're either buying the girl drinks, trying to sweet talk her, and, and, and basically paying her for her time. In that place, it's the complete opposite. I mean, if a girl's not going to you know, show me a $20 bill within the first 10 seconds I talk to her, I'm moving on. I don't have the time. Yeah, I mean, certainly, if, if you're there in a supplicating position, then you are uh, indicating that you have lower sexual market value than the woman, and women in general do not respond to men who have lower sexual market value than they do because of hypergamy and the desire to trade up. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and what's also crazy about being in that, uh, in that work environment is you'll find women that's Saturday night, and women's some, you know, some chick's getting married Sunday. And it's Saturday night. She's getting married Sunday. She's asking you if you can go to her hotel room. You have women I'm sorry. That, say, say that again. She wants basically to bang her the Saturday night before her wedding. Like it, she it, wants to have sex with the stripper yep. the night before her wedding. Yep. And boy, I, boy, talk about the alpha fucks and beta bucks, right? I mean, because genetically, historically, prior to birth control, that impulse would have meant that she would have had sex with an alpha uh, the night before she gets married. Then she would have her honeymoon. Uh, but of course, if the sperm from the alpha was already uh, heading its way eggward, then the uh, the beta or the marriage partner would end up raising the alpha's kid and thinking it was his own, right? Yeah, pretty much. That's uh, and uh, it's just insane. Like uh, you, uh, that, and that's perfectly true. But the thing is, it's just married women, women that are in relationships. They completely during the show they have no boyfriend. We we we. This is a funny thing. So let's say you go to a group of girls, you're partying with them, you're drinking with them, you're dancing for them, you're making money off of them, and they're exchanging they're giving you their phone numbers and they want to see you and all this other stuff happens maybe the party moves on to an after party now you leave the strip show and now you're at another nightclub and you're at this after party then you know you'll find out that so-and-so girl's married the other girl's got a boyfriend the other girl's got a fiance this one lives with her boyfriend you learn that all these women are pretty much spoken for but they're all just jumping all over your shit during the show and wanting to party with you afterward and giving you their phone numbers and it's just uh it's it's kind of madness i, I think this I don't, I'm not going to say this is uh, going to be the case. At least this is maybe, maybe me being a, an optimist. I don't think this is the case for all women across the board. I no, think, listen. I mean, it's a self-selecting group of women who are at a strip show. Well, no, no, no. Here's the thing. They're at a strip show for the most part because it's a bachelorette party or a birthday party. So you're, you're not getting like, you know, chicks that are just horny on a Friday afternoon saying, oh, I'm going to go see some, 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 strip, some strippers tonight. The, the girls that you're getting are just generally dragged into a bachelorette party. You've got 15 girls. There's one special lady in the group. And all 15 of them end up buying tickets to a show because they have to go, right? It's, it's just a thing that these girls are going to do. And so you're getting some normal women there. You're not getting like just these, you know, cockthirsty sluts. You're just, you know, you're not, you're not getting, they, they turn into that. But I think it's the environment that turns them into that. I think it's a New York City function. I think it's a big city function. So in other words, you have this big city where I feel like women outnumber men. And uh, at least quality men are, are, no, are, are really not anywhere to be found. I mean, they're making a lot of money. The guys that are quality men... They have their pick of the litter. I, I think over time, what ended up happening was the longer that I was in this business and the more I look around, the more I realize that being an alpha, if you were getting, let's say, I don't know, spitball numbers, if you were banging, let's say, you know, 20 chicks a year, you're, you're banging double now. And I think if you're a beta, if you were banging 20 chicks a year, you know, 10 years ago, you're probably banging five now. I think women are just flooding to the alphas and completely disregarding the betas altogether. Well, I, there's certainly truth in that, right? I mean, there's the 80-20 rule that 20% of the guys get 80% of the women. And in studies where men have been asked to rate women's looks 
they're about fair. They rate about half the women above average and about half the women below average. But uh, women, when they rate men's looks, they rate 80% of the men as below average. Uh, and that's, of course, because women are hypergamous. They want the most attractive or the highest status male. And certainly as the guy up there, you know, drenched in oil and, and uh, gyrating uh, and all of that, you'd be the highest status male around in that particular environment. And um, so, yeah, no, and this is why marriage has collapsed for the lower and middle classes uh, in America, and marriage is remaining relatively stable for the upper classes. Uh, women uh, all want to get higher status men. And of course, now that women are getting more educated and the majority of students in school are women and so on, and women with college degrees almost never want to date a guy without a college degree, uh, certainly not settle down. So, oh, no question that the alphas are cornering uh, the market at the moment. And this is another reason why it's tough to change societies. The alphas have all the power and the alphas are getting all the women. So why would they want to change anything? Exactly. Uh, of course, the betas are getting shut out and that that ends up with a catastrophic demographic winter with no reproduction and all that. But uh, yeah, it's brutal for the betas these days. And, and you just said it, right? Why would the alphas want to change anything? And there we are with my with my problem here. I have no real incentive to change anything. All right, sorry. I, I want to get to that in a second. Yeah. I, just, I just want to pause for a second on, on something that, that sure. you said. Sure. Uh, but let me ask you a little bit earlier, um, you were talking about you know the, the difficulties of working out and so on. Mm. Do you know if a lot of strippers are using um, you know, human growth hormone or steroids? I mean, are, are yeah. they using something, things that's, to help out? That's common. That's common. I mean, yeah. I, I, I've prided myself on being a lifetime natural, which makes it 10 times harder. And I'm, that's, I, I, I cycle my, my dancing seasons on and off because... I can't be this ripped guy all year round. So I'll, you know, following Thanksgiving up until about, I want to say springtime, I just won't dance at all. And I'll focus a little bit more on other, this is when I get my creative burst, right? When I want to do other things. Uh, The season dies down as well. It's not as busy. You're not getting as many parties. The shows don't attract as many women. And, uh, you know, that's when I'll let my body fat percentage come higher, focus a little bit more on strength and power, and then shred down for the summer and try to hold on to that low body fat percentage as long as I can during the summer months, maybe into the fall, and let my body relax again. Because your body can take a beating of uh, being that lean very long. You have to be genetically gifted again to be able to maintain low body fat percentage uh, and still have high testosterone levels and lower uh, cortisol levels. Yeah, and it's tough on the joints uh, and, and the tendons and all that. It's not just muscles. Well, that's, it. that's if you're going to be dehydrated. So if you're going to maintain a lower body fat percentage and uh, you're not dehydrated, uh, you're, you're taking in the right amount of minerals and everything else like that, and you're also drinking enough water, you're not, you know, because you, the thing is this, subcutaneous water retention depends on how much sodium you're taking in and how much carbohydrate you have. So if you're going to reduce carbohydrates and you're going to reduce sodium, let's say pre-show, you'll drop like five pounds of water weight before show. And then you could even have maybe a little bit of carbohydrate to fill your muscles up a little bit extra before the show begins. So there, there are tricks that you can play to look leaner and tighter than usual, but for the most part, most guys don't really get into that kind of detail. Uh, I dabbled in a little bit of natural bodybuilding and I'm a fitness trainer as well. So I, I, I can get into this kind of thing, but I mean, for, for most guys, uh, you know, they're either genetically gifted or they're just doing the basics in the gym or they're just taking gear. And a lot of, it's, it's very common because it's a good investment. I mean, just spending 500 bucks a month on your steroid cycle, you're, you're like this giant, you know, buffed up alpha God at the show and no one, no one can compare to you. Right, right. Now, um, I just want to read something very briefly because you, you pointed out something that, that was interesting. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I'll put forward the radical thesis that if men listen to what women say they want, both men and women end up less happy. <laughs> this, is, this is very, very important. Hello, Europe migrant crisis. I'm still talking to you. Uh, when men listen to what women say they want, both men and women end up less happy. So now we'll put a link to this below. 
A study called Egalitarianism, Housework, and Sexual Frequency in Marriage appeared in the American Sociological Review last year. And um, the assumption that people have is that when marriages become more equal, the sex in those marriages will improve, right? Because, you know, women say, well, I just want you to do the dishes and I want you to do the laundry and I want you to do all of this kind of stuff. Uh And uh, then if men listen, uh, you would assume that women would be happier and and the marriage life would improve and the sex life would improve. But um, it's not true. When men do certain kinds of chores around the house, couples had less sex. If men did all of what the researchers characterized as feminine chores, like folding laundry, cooking, or vacuuming, the kinds of things many women say they want their husbands to do, then the couples had sex 1.5 fewer times per month than those with husbands who did what were considered masculine chores, like taking out the trash or fixing the car. And it wasn't just the frequency of sex that went down when marriages became more, quote, equal. It was the quality of sex for the wives. So the more traditionally husbands and wives divided chores, in other words, the more that men did manly things and women did feminine things, the greater the wife's reported sexual satisfaction. Right, right. Now, that's something you can sort of sit for an entire afternoon and ponder because it has such sort of deep ramifications well, I could on, on so many different things. Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I could boil that down into a sentence. I, I tell young guys uh, that in, in, in basically one or two sentences, it's uh, – a woman will not respect or fuck her bitch. If you're going to be her bitch, she will not fuck you. I'm sure that that was the original title on that, this New York Times article. They may have, uh, they may have decided yeah, not to, to go it, with it at the end. I don't, I don't but the other thing too, right? So what's called sexual dimorphism, which is the behavior that animals have that is distinct between the genders, more than just the fact that, you know, men have penises and women have vaginas. And so sex is about masculinity and femininity. I'm talking about sort of traditional heterosexual sex. And so the more the man acts like a woman, the less the woman's going to be turned on. I mean, that's, unless she's a lesbian, (laughs) then, uh, but then of course, if you have two lesbians together, you get the phenomenon known as lesbian bed death, which is that lesbians have sex, uh, you know, once or twice a month. Uh, Gay guys, I think that's every day (laughs) married heterosexual yeah, a couple of times like, a week kind uh, of thing. Much, much higher rates of domestic violence as well, like lesbian couples. I think they're the highest of all, of all the pairings. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, very significant domestic violence. Um, but yeah, this is, this is sort of important that women will say that they want men to be like women uh-huh. and then they are unhappy when men are like women. Like there's, there's two facts that are kind of going on. Depends on what kind of women you're talking about. It really depends on what yeah. kind of women you're talking about. It's, it's just, you know, it's, it's just a, well, do you want to be a woman? I want you to be a woman. And if the man says no, then she'll sleep with him. And if he says yes, then she'll um, use him to borrow money exactly. so that she can go to a strip club and sleep with you. She immediately but, friend zone. Um, You're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, friend zone. So um, yeah, two things are happening to, to particularly white Western women. Number one is that they're miserable. Miserable, miserable, miserable people. Now, feminism was supposed to bring equality, which was supposed to bring satisfaction and happiness. Number one, they're miserable. Number two, shockingly, the life expectancy for white Western women is declining. At the moment, it's declining at the moment. So not only are they miserable, but they're stressed and sick and dying. Uh, so, of course, all we have to do is wait for women to admit that they were probably wrong about certain aspects of feminism and uh, agree to change. That will never happen. That will never happen. <laughs> I was That's waiting. So I was, was going to say, no way you really believe that. <laughs> <laughs> not going to happen. Not going to happen. Uh, men are just going to need to accept the facts and be men again. So, and I know it's tough. You've been raised by a single mom. What does it mean to be a man? Well, 
Um, that's a challenge. But anyway, I want to get back to your, I just sort of wanted to point that stuff out, but I do want to get back to your, no, no, that's, your that, questions. That, that's more than fair. But I mean, just, just to add to that uh, very quickly, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing now, this whole, uh, I don't know if you know about the, the MGTOW phenomenon, that's kind of like a response to feminism. Uh, yeah. this is the men going the wrong way kind of thing. I just, all of a sudden I feel like women wanted to be, uh, and I, I don't, I don't want to use the word selfish, but I feel like it just, just being like, they wanted to be able to do everything on their, on their own. And, uh, to, to to divide themselves away from men, almost be a, almost say to themselves, we don't want men involved in our business and doing it completely on their own. While men always, I think, thought of doing things on their own but partnering up with women. And now men are pretty much with this MGTOW thing, saying, well, we not only don't want to be involved with women, we don't want to be involved with society on the whole and government and whatever and you name it. And, and they're just completely isolated uh, in this in this bubble of, uh, of of I feel like selfishness. I remember hearing. Um, a video you did not too long ago where you talked about, I think it was atheism and uh, how you were disappointed in that there's no real investment into the future and there's a lot of selfishness with atheism and they're trying, and being an atheist, you're going to try to, you know, impose your atheist religion upon others through, through the state of, 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 of whatever, of whatever kind of redistribution, you know, uh, rules you want to make up with your atheist faith. So, so the thing is, there's no state, there's no skin in the game because there's no kids. You're not really investing uh, you, you're not thinking about family, and I think with MGTOW and with feminism, you're just taking a dump all over family with both of those. Uh, so it's just, it's just, I don't know what direction we're going to go, but if, I, I think Japan is, a, is, a, is an example of what can happen when men pretty much give up and become obsessed with their appearance and with, uh, you know, kind of uh, just being in this bubble where they're satisfying all their urges and needs with either paying women for their services or just going to electronics and machinery. I think Japan is leading the world. Yeah, I mean, that that there was always this science fiction story that the robots that human beings create to do their work for them, the utility robots, they somehow rebel. But here you have the robots just going inert, right? The utility robots, which is the men in oh. society, yeah, just just tired of being uh, lassoed by family courts and used to serve women. And, you know, the, the I, I don't know. The MGTOW guys, to me, don't fall into the same category as the leftists. If you're a leftist and you don't have kids, then you are preying upon the young because you're relying on other people to absorb the cost of creating the taxpayers that you need to feed on in your old age. But the MGTOW guys, they're not consuming usually a lot of taxes. Some of them go ghost or whatever and, and off the grid. The MGTOW guys not consuming a lot of taxes. Uh, and uh, I don't view that in the same way. Uh, they're just basically saying uh, it is. I can I can do a a calculation of risk and reward when it comes to involvement with uh, females and you know this hysteria and all these false rape rape allegations. You know they fall like a javelin deep into the heart of masculinity. Uh, and you know we could spend twenty minutes just listing off all of the rape accusations recently that have destroyed men's lives that have been proven to be utterly false. And for whom the women have not been sanctioned or punished at all. Yeah. Uh, and there's no feminists usually crying out for the punishment of women for false rape accusations. Whereas, of course, if women cared about rape, really cared about rape, they'd be the first to line up to um, call for the punishment of women who falsely accuse men of rape. Because that means that it becomes tougher to uh, convict uh, the next time and so on. Yeah, you're 100%. So I, um, uh, I would just say that I, I don't view the, the MGTOW phenomenon as particularly... Um, selfish. Uh, it is a rational response in some ways to the risks um, of, uh, and, and I, you know, if I hadn't met my wife, I would, I would definitely be along those lines. Look, I, mean, I, mean, without I, a doubt. I dabbled with the idea of MGTOW. I personally know MGTOWs and uh, I, I agree with you. They're not, they're not leftists at all. I, a lot of MGTOWs are actually very libertarian, conservative. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're going, they're going galt, right? They're, they're doing a, exactly. they're, they're taking their sperm and, and staying home. And uh, that's a completely understandable 
from a certain perspective of risk and reward. And if you don't meet a great women, and I've listened to some of the MGTOW channels, and the MGTOW channels that I've listened to, the men have had disastrous experiences with women, dangerous experiences with women, and they know a lot of guys who have smoking craters where their testicles used to be because the wrong woman dragged them through, uh, you know, the usual and status nightmare of family court and, and divorce and alimony and child support and God knows what, and their lives are destroyed. So it's not, you know, from if the woman has nothing to offer except sex, and that sex is like uh, Russian roulette uh, every time you have it, uh, and, and given the prevalence of uh, pornography and so on, uh, you know, the man can uh, spend a few minutes rubbing one out, or he can go into the truly dangerous leg-exploding landmine of modern female male sexual relationships. So from a cost-benefit standpoint, it makes total sense. And of course, people do go on strike when they are in unprofitable situations. It's why nothing ever got done in Soviet factories. Because, you know, as the old joke used to say, uh, you know, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. It all just becomes uh, nobody does anything in the absence of positive incentives. That's why one of the reasons why socialism and communism don't work. And so um, given that um, sexuality has been socialized by the state and the consequences of sexuality have been socialized by the state. Basically, male-female relationships are just another Soviet factory and uh, men are just uh, going through the motions or, you know, if you don't have su- suffer any sanctions for not showing up to a bullshit job, why would you bother? You're right. All right. So, um, let's get on to what you want to do. Now, I won't ask in particular what you want to do because that I don't think is... Uh, is is the key. The question is, why are you so lazy? Yeah. That's what your question is. What's your time frame? When do you think you will be unable to continue in this job? <laughs> I know guys in their 40s that are still doing this. So I've got at least 10 years if I wanted to keep going in this direction. So I've got time. Uh, uh, but the thing is... And can, can you yeah. save enough to, to retire after that? Um, not by being a dancer. No, you have to get involved on the back end. If you're, if you're going to get in the business, um, of selling- <laughs> sorry, you might, you might want to explain <laughs> yeah. to my listeners yeah. what getting involved in the back end okay. means. The back end of the business, the company, come on, Steph. <laughs> I, what I mean is like running the actual shows, uh, selling the tickets, promoting the shows, uh, booking the parties. That's the back end. The, the front end would be obviously the, the, you know, being the actual entertainer performer that's being booked for the show. So it's the business side, yeah, exactly. right? Rather than the product, you you're involved in the the business side. Exactly. You sell, okay. you know, you sell tickets. You're making hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. You don't sell tickets. You're making a couple grand a month. Now, do you have interest in the business side of stripping? I I have. I've actually uh, partnered up with the owner of uh, the largest company in New York back in actually the largest company in New York was not the largest company back in 2008, and uh, I partnered up at, in 2008. They lost their partner. So there were two companies working together. They, the, the main company lost its partner, and I became like the main master of ceremonies and performer for the show all throughout 2008. Uh, by the end of 2008, I uh, partnered up with the owner of that company and started a new show in Atlantic City. And I ran that show all throughout Atlantic, Atlantic City um, all throughout uh, 2009, and I had intentions to go to Boston and open up a second venue. So, I mean, I, I, I come from this sort of like, wanting to be independent, having kind of an entrepreneurial spirit kind of thing. And, uh, you know, me and the owner had a falling out. He was trying to screw me on some some money issues. And so I just said, you know what, if we're going to do this now, I don't want to be 10 cities deep and you, you're, you're trying to screw me over on money. So let's, let's, let's walk. So I walked away from him. And uh, ever since then, I've been kind of bouncing around just performing for shows. 
and kind of, uh, you know, one ideal hit me and I'll like, let me, let me try this and I'll try it for a little while. And I guess once the rubber meets the road, I get kind of turned off and I just go back to, back to the performing business. I I usually bounce around for the most part, it's going to be in the dancing business. I never really wanted to invest too much time in the personal training or the fitness business. But, uh, you know, that, that's another thing that I'm very good at and it it pays the bills when, when I'm not dancing. So now it's, It's it's um a bit of a one way street in so far as it's a little hard, if I understand this right, it's a little hard to think about sort of getting mainstream suit and tie accounting type work. To some degree, of course, your past is going to be very visible and available to everyone. Is there sort of a concern for you that if you move out of I mean, I'm going to call you the sex trade because you're not obviously a sex worker, but if you move out of this sort of titillation or stripping business, that your past might sort of clang along behind you and interfere with opportunities outside this field? No, I actually, uh, for two reasons. One, uh, a mirror view, uh, I, I know there's a stigma there, but I think with, uh, with the Magic Mike movie coming out and, you know, just the, now that there's a little bit more light on what that kind of, kind of work actually is, I'm not sure if that same stigma is there anymore. So uh, I think it's kind of one of those things where you can kind of laugh it off. Like, huh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's one thing I think um, – Female dancers are usually damaged. Male dancers are just, you know, guys trying to take advantage of an opportunity. I, I don't, I don't think male dancers are for the most part. I mean, some of the most normal, down-to-earth professional guys uh, you'll ever meet. You'll, you, you, I mean, not not in, in the sense that you'll ever meet them, but if you were to go to the show and talk to these guys, uh, you've got artists, you've got musicians. Um, I've, I've got a younger brother who, uh, you know, he he dabbled in uh, actually uh, overseeing the operations of the show. And uh, he talked about it on an interview for medical school and got in. And that was one of the key points that they appreciated. So it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it, it, you, you don't know if it'll hurt you or not, but I mean, I'm not worried about that. The other point that I want to make is I don't like working for people long term. So I don't care about – I'm not the kind of guy that regrets what I've ever done. Uh, so if I were to talk to somebody or try to apply for a job or try to work in a place where they were to hold – uh, that against me, regardless of all the other positives that I can bring to the table, I'd rather not work there. Right, right. I mean, Sylvester Stallone, uh, Cameron Diaz, um, a bunch of Matt LeBlanc, and you know the guy from uh, Friends. There were you know a whole bunch of people who got started in Channing Tatum, well, Bruce Willis, all these. Yeah, David Duchovny. Believe it or not, I mean, I know he seems to be a bit of a sex addict uh, as a whole. But um, there are a lot of actors, of course, who started out. I mean, even Schwarzenegger uh, started out doing some, uh, well, I guess some (laughs) titillating ancillation stuff. Even Helen Mirren, who is like one of the queens of British acting, uh, started out doing some pretty salacious uh, stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I I don't think that it's a – as far as I understand it, there's a lady named Sasha Gray. But anyway, <laughs> even Jackie Chan did some some stuff that was pretty if, uh, pretty if, raunchy. If I'm being ostracized for it, I'll just use a lefty, uh, you know, what, what what narrative and just say I'm being, you know, I'm uh, shame. <laughs> there you go, and I'll just do one. Hell, Marilyn Monroe, of course, started off uh, doing topless shots and uh, uh, ended up uh, what dying on her own vomit or something. But anyway, so yeah, and and I think that there is a perception, you know, rightly or wrongly, there is a perception that. If you are a female stripper, then you're damaged goods. But if you're a male stripper, you're a good time party guy who made some cool decisions and, and had a lot of fun, right? Pretty much. Right. Right. Okay. So the question then is, first of all, help me understand. I mean, you you work out hard uh-huh. to, to keep your physique. But what is it that you say is lazy about yourself? 
I, I don't think working out is the hard part. And the thing is, once you find something that you like to do and you're good at, you're going to do it. And, and even if you weren't being paid to do it, you'd still do it. So, you know, I'll find the time. I'll always find the time to go to the gym. I, I'd rather not sleep and, and, and be able to find that hour or two. I mean, I'm, a, I'm much smarter and better with my time now. I can go into the gym in that one hour and I can do the same thing that I used to do back in three hours. But I had to put in those many, many hours of investment years before to learn to become efficient to the point where I can just go in and out and do what I do now. But, uh, well, plus, um, plus it's, uh, it's something that because you've achieved a certain level of fitness, maintenance is a lot easier than getting there, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like maintaining uh, a weight loss, like I lost like 30 pounds a couple of years ago, maintaining that is pretty easy. Losing it wasn't necessarily <laughs> particularly easy, but I'm one of the 2 or 3% of people who loses weight and actually keeps it off. Yeah. But um, so, so, okay, so what is it that your day – Give me a sort of typical weekday when you when you have a show. What's your schedule? When you up? Uh, what do you do? And and what's your day like? Right, so right now I'm not doing any shows at the moment. But uh, w w I left I left my company back in November. So I'll give you the schedule up until last November. And uh, then when I started my own brand of women's entertainment, actually it's a totally different schedule for that. So back back when I was doing the shows with with a, with a major company here in New York, uh, honestly. Um, from, I want to say, Sunday through Thursday, well, Sunday through Wednesday, you've got nothing to do. You're free. You wake up in the morning, you go to the gym, you, you hang out with your friends. Okay, well, hang on. Yeah. Just be more specific, if you don't mind. What time are you getting up typically okay. on a weekday? I mean, you, you work late, right? Yeah, so. yeah. So, so, so for me, honestly, uh, it would be anywhere between, uh, if, I'm, if I'm feeling energetic and I've got things to do, uh, and God knows what that even means, things to do, but I, I'll get out of bed anywhere between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. Um, right. sometimes we'll sleep until like noon, but I, I generally don't like being in bed longer than noon. If I'm in bed longer than noon, that probably means I went to bed six in the morning and I was drunk. So, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's kind of tough to get your day, get, get your day going when you're kind of rolling down the hill of the afternoon, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, I mean, the thing is the day's so long because I mean, you're, you're, you're up at noon, but you're not going to go to bed until three, four in the morning anyway. So you still have the same number of hours. It's just the, the time frame is different. That's all. So, right. So, um, so for instance, if Mike wanted to be a stripper, he's already on the schedule. Okay. That's I was important. waiting for the crack about my schedule. Yeah, I was waiting, just, you know, just waiting for I mean, that's pretty much the only thing that, he, that's, that he's ready to roll. It's a smooth transition yeah. for Mike. <laughs> uh, it's just envy for me because uh, I'm a parent. Um, okay. So, um, and that would be the so, day. sort of what, okay. So what, let's say you get up at eight or 10, mm -hmm. uh, and let's say you have a show. I, when, when do you have to show up for? Show okay. prep. So usually it's uh, 6 p.m. You get, you get to get to the show by uh, 6 p.m. There's uh, check-ins and like check-in fees and everything else like that. You got to pay to work because uh, you can make good money for there. I mean, all dancers pay uh, the club money before they work. So uh, and you uh, you make your money off tips, is that right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the thing is, if you're so if, you have a negative minimum wage. Okay. <laughs> got well, it. if you're if you're booked to perform, you're already getting paid in advance. The minimum booking call, uh, the minimum the minimum booking is going to be a ten minute performance on stage for a uh, hundred bucks, and then whatever you make on the floor is yours. Whatever you make on stage in tips is yours. So that that's pretty much the way it goes. So you just got to be prepared for a ten minute performance, and if you're good at what you do, it's pretty easy. It's not that extreme either, because I mean, most of these guys strip down to boxer briefs. It's it's like you you're you're dressed the same as you would be dressed on the beach. So it's really not this banana hammock, g string kind of like madness that was there back in the nineties. You know, they they can't <laughs> tell you whether you're Jewish or not just by having a glance. Right? Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure what Jewish guys are packing or not, but I'm not, I don't know why you would know that. <laughs> oh, I'm just a circumcision joke. All ah, right. Okay. So, um, 
Okay, so you show, but what do you do sort of in, in 10 o'clock till, till 6 p.m.? It, it's, it's open day. I mean, you're just, you kind of just slowly move along. You, you have your breakfast, uh, you know, you could, you know, maybe watch a couple of YouTube videos. You hit the gym, meet up with some of your friends. You get another meal in, you go home, you take a shower, make sure you're shaved, groomed, all that good stuff. Get dressed, drive down into the city, and there you go. You're, 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 Are you pretty much like napalm manscaping down there? I mean, I assume that people don't want to see a whole lot of uh, Studley von Freebush action in their faces. No, right? I mean, the, it's just you get used to the standard. Standard is basically uh, you're, you're generally always going to be tan. You're generally going to always be lean. You're almost always, always uh, shaven top to bottom, uh, your full, full body. Uh, it, the grooming is such a pain in the ass. It's it, it but, <laughs> literally right. It, well, no, I don't go there, but, but I, I guess it depends on what kind of scene you're working. Maybe maybe you're gonna have to, but uh, it's 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 definitely yeah, it's definitely not fun. But I mean, it, it, it depends on how hairy you are. I, I know guys that are doing it every week, and I know guys that do it every month or every three months. It depends on how quickly your body hair grows back. But that's something you got to be aware of. Obviously, you don't want to show up with a hairy chest and. Right. And how many shows a week do you do when you're in season? When we're in season, uh, four shows a week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And some Saturdays are doubles. So we get two shows on Saturdays. And this is in New York. I know in uh, Vegas, Chippendales does. Oof, man. I think I've got a couple of friends that work down there in Vegas. And I think, from what I remember, I think they have two shows on Friday, two shows on Saturday, one on Sunday. And I think one every other day during the week except maybe Monday. So well, you can't do two shows on Sunday. We've got to get to church, right? So, <laughs> The best place to go after church, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, okay, so when it comes to feeling lazy, is it? did you feel that your sort of days are a semi-distracted blur of nothing achieving much because you're kind of waiting for the night and then you sort of happens again? Is that yeah. how it's happening for you? That's That's kind of a good way to put it, yeah. Okay, okay. All right. Do you think that you'll be, I mean, because, you know, performing is, is, is energy. Mm-hmm. It, it takes energy. Like for me, if I've got a great show, this is, you know, obviously it's a conversation. It's a little bit of a performance as well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at the end of the show, I mean, you know, it takes a while to come down and be able to get to, to sleep. So getting ready for the energy necessary for a performance and then coming down off that, because a lot of energy in the crowd. Definitely. Right. There's a, a lot of energy that comes out of the crowd, particularly if it's sexual energy. That is very heady. I obviously, right? It's part of an a um it's like an addiction to 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 go and get that high, as well as the money, of course. So so getting ready for a show is not inconsequential. It's not just like, well, I've got a day and then I it's just like ten minutes, you know. It's like, no, it's a lot more than that, uh, for in terms of getting ready and and um, of course it, you want to put on a great show because it's very you're tip dependent awesome. and so on. It really is. Very yeah, so, especially especially so when you're an astro ceremony. So I can appreciate what you do when you're speaking into a microphone all day long. Uh, when you're up there for two hours <laughs> screaming into a mic, and I, I'm competing with now. For example, now let's say you have uh, four or five hundred women in, in in the nightclub, and you've got maybe thirty men running around in the crowd, like just banging them for tips. And you're on stage with a microphone, trying to control the audience and get them to follow the show on stage while there's men on the floor competing for their attention. So there's yeah. just this madhouse of just, uh, just me screaming into a microphone for two hours, and uh, you know, then it's all over, and all you want to do is sleep. Yeah. So, sorry, and I forgot to mention that as well, um, which is the, the Master of Ceremonies thing is a big, big job. It's a big job. Mm-hmm. It's a big job. You've got so many things to process, as, as you're talking about. You're managing 
you know, this wild rampaging hormone fueled female sexual cattle rush. <laughs> and so it is a lot of stuff. Uh, to, to manage and to control, and you're kind of responsible for the quality of the whole evening. And if you mess up, some of the other dancers might not get as many tips. So, you know, you're, you're out there representing, so to speak, right? So it, it's a big job. So my question is, do you think that you'll be able to focus on developing other opportunities for yourself, Usman, if you continue to work at nights and, and doing the Master of Ceremony stuff? Do you think you'll have the energy and focus to do to, to build sustainable other things if you're still doing this amount of work at night? Um, honestly, looking back at the last 10 years, I think not. I have to, I have to, if I have to be honest, I think, uh, you know, my week is mostly spent just working out and looking forward to the weekends. And then, like I said, making enough money on the weekends to, again, just push me forward. You, you right. make enough money. And the thing is this, I mean, most guys are wasting their money on women, right? So, I show up for work and I got all the free women I want, right? And and they're giving me money, so I'm 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 making money and I'm not spending it on chicks. So, so. but to, to okay, <laughs> just take step me through this if if you can, right? Mm. So, um, how many women are you sleeping with a year? Uh, every year is a little bit different. Uh, I don't know I, if this if, all right, this year. Um, let's just let's just count this year, right? January, February, March. Uh, this year, I say four. Four. Yeah, that's not oh. bad, right? That's that's pretty good. Well, the thing is, I, I wasn't I wasn't stripping. I, I stopped dancing. I stopped. Dancing. Okay, but Remember? but give me give me give me peak poon season. Well, oh, what are we talking okay. here? All right, so I'll I'll tell you. Like, I'm I'm more conservative than most guys. All right, so uh, for me, uh, honestly, I want to say uh, you're gonna you're gonna meet at least ah Jesus, I don't know one one or two women a week. If you're gonna if if, if you're looking for it, you're definitely gonna get at least one or two a week. Uh, I know I know guys that that literally make it their mission to bang three or four girls a night and they, and they get it done. So, you know, and we're, so we're looking at uh, guys that get, ah, uh, youth. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And these are the guys that are like 20, 21, 22, 23 years old, the 23 to 25 year old guys, they're literally like, I mean, they'll take a girl, you know, into the bathroom and, and get a blow job and then take another girl into the corner and maybe slip a dick inside of her. And like, they're just doing all this crazy shit all night long and getting paid for it. And the girls are not like, they're not a train wreck. These are like young, pretty girls all in their early 20s. I mean, all bachelorette age range. So it's just, uh, man, it's just, it just, yeah, if you're looking for it and if you're working for it, you'll absolutely get it. I don't, I don't want to exaggerate and make it sound like it's an extreme thing. I mean, there's, 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 there's dry spells for everyone. But I mean, for us, it's just not very long. <laughs> you know, it's a, a dry spell is a weekend where you didn't meet a girl. Well, for you, a dry spell is like the space between a raindrop. It's not exactly uh, Arizona time out there, right? Okay. Um, it's just, uh, I, I'm assuming that none of these women are named June Cleaver, but, um, okay. So I assume, is there, is there a big problem with STDs in this community? If there is, no one talks about it. I mean, I'm not going wood. I've never gotten anything. So, right. but I, I, I honestly, I tell you what, I think it's overrated and it's probably not a hell, not a smart thing or a healthy thing to say for, for listeners. But, uh, I remember when I first got into the business, I was very conservative with sleeping with women. I didn't really want to do it very much because I was so hyper obsessed with getting an STD. I'm a health fanatic, right? So, and then I, I, I know these guys, and they're literally just fucking their asses off, and 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 they're not even wearing condoms, and they're all fine. And and, and it's it. Uh, uh, there was a friend of mine who gave me the example of look, it's the guy that jogs every day that you hear about dying from a heart attack. Now, while that's not statistically true, it's it's anecdotally true. So it's it's one of those things that just you know these guys are just they're just going nuts all over these girls, 
and nothing's happening to them. And meanwhile, you'll have like a friend who doesn't work in this business, who just maybe met a girl at a bar or maybe met a girl in school. And he sleeps with her and he gets an STD. So it's just, I don't know. I feel like the, the overly playing it safe stuff is a little bit overrated. I, I think that given your choice of profession and your habits, I, I almost would be shocked if you didn't have that philosophy. So, um, um, okay, so you may be a couple of girls a week. Now, how does that work? So you, you're dancing and the girl, how, how does she meet you, after right? Party. I mean, so the after party. So we say all the strippers are going to Club X or whatever, K-O-X, right? They're all going to, to Club X. Right. And then the girls sort of, right, they, they come after. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're sort of dancing and, and chatting with these girls. And then what happens? Well, it's pretty simple. One thing leads to the next. Then you either leave and go to, go, they'll either have a hotel room or maybe your car outside or, you know, maybe your friend's car outside or maybe the girl's limousine outside. I mean, it's just, it, or maybe you'll find a bathroom in the club. You, you, you'll make it work. <laughs> Whatever you want to do, you'll make it work. So that, that, that's in the moment, in the night, right? Now, yeah. who's uh, is she, sorry? Is she buying you drinks at this point? At, well, at the after party, we have uh, we usually have bottles at a table, and so we invite the girls to hang out at our table. But the girls are okay. buying drinks, and and they 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 have no gripes with buying us drinks. Many times, have girls grabbed us by the hand, dragged us to the bar, and said, "What are you having?" And we just buy us whatever we want. So they, I'm, I generally don't. I mean, we never buy them drinks if that's if that's what you mean. <laughs> that never happens. Um, <sighs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm channeling the collective shock and outrage of the vast majority of the, um, the male audience of this show. I just, you know, it, you know, it, it really is, it, it really is pretty bad shit. After a while, you just like, you just know what it is. Like now I've gotten to the point where I don't even have to meet a girl at the club. I can meet her at a gym or a supermarket and go out with her and make her buy me a drink. You just know how to position yourself. You just know you're more valuable and she will shell out for you. So that 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 that's an interesting dynamic in of itself. And so if you're not meeting girls that night in the in the club, you're maybe exchanging. Maybe you give a girl a, a, a really sweet girl a lap dance, and she's not the kind of girl that wants to sleep with you on the first night. She'll give you her phone number. You'll meet her maybe two nights later. You'll go out for drinks. One thing leads to the next. You're back at her place, and boom. So that that that's the more common way of it going down. It either happens the Do night. You- or- yeah, so it's pretty rapid. Did, did these women ever want to have more of a relationship with you, or was it just basically, you know, scratch the edge? With, with me personally, uh, in my experience, I found that they have, and uh, it's not always the case for all the guys. So the thing is, um, for, for most of the for most of these women, it's just a good time, right? I mean, good good looking guy, you know, you, you treat them right in the bedroom, and they're pretty much happy, and uh, that's all they ever wanted. But when they find out there's more depth to the person. That's usually when their feelings come out. And they're like, "Oh my God, I, I found me an alpha male. Not only is he an alpha, but he's smart and he can articulate himself, or he has ambitions, or he has goals, or he wants to do other things, and blah blah blah." And all of a sudden, they create this maybe cartoonish character in their mind of who you are, and maybe the kind of person that you know that, that they want to be with. So then it it happens. Uh, generally, for me, my personal experience has been um, almost every woman I've ever met at the show, they meet me as a performer. And uh, when they meet me outside of the show, they almost feel like they can't connect the individual from the show to the individual they're having coffee or, or a drink with later. You know, uh, I, I, I don't carry that stripper persona everywhere I go. No, of course not. Of course not. <laughs> oh, um, and have you had uh, have any of these flourished into more long term relationships? No, I've never been with a girl longer than about six months and I've never been in love. 
You've never been in love. Yeah. Have you just seen too much? <laughs> I think it can happen. I, I just, uh, maybe I have faith it can happen. I don't know. But uh, I, I, the thing is, I, I tell you, it, it's the craziest thing. It's just you, just, you just really feel bored and frustrated with the girl you're with. And you just can't stop looking. The thing is this, when you're, when you're, especially when you're dancing, if you're dancing every night you go to work, it's, it's difficult as hell to just do your job and go home. So if the woman is with you and you're a male dancer, you gotta, you gotta, she has to really appreciate the fact that you're fighting your instinct for as long as you're there at your work. And, and you're, you're being faithful and loyal to a girl is very difficult. Uh, this is why I don't have long-term relationships. I'm an, I'm an honest guy. I won't cheat on a girl. I just won't stay with her very long. Because sooner or later, like the drunk in the distillery, you're going to give in, right? Pretty much. You, you, no, I mean, if you've, got, if you've got vagina cannon fired at you all day, sometimes every now and then it's like murder ball. You just you ain't going to be able to dodge, right? It's just, it's just you're surrounded by so many options. I mean, so, so you're dating a brunette and you're like, you're like, now you see blondes. You're like, huh, that's nice. You're dating a blonde now. And now you're like, hmm, a Colombian. You know what? I'll go for that. And then you go for a Colombian. You're like, hmm, check it out. Look, we've got an Arab girl there. He just, he just never stops. And this is the problem. You just, you just keep going. <laughs> right. Yeah. Do you uh, do you think that you ever do want to settle down, get married, have kids, that kind of stuff? Absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely. Uh, I mean, maybe not marriage in the legal sense because I'm not a fan of. Uh, but committed in some way, right? Yeah. I mean, I want to have a family. I definitely want to have children and uh, and and live with a woman and and, and make it work. And I definitely want to be able to do that. Right. Right. So so that's going to be a whole different kettle of fish, right? That's going to be a whole different. <laughs> things you need to find because right now you're looking for like your dick is leading you to women right mm -hmm. but when you want to settle down it's the, the happiness of your future children is what needs to lead you to the woman right right and and these two things kind of opposite you know like you're going to have to develop a whole other set of skills in terms of evaluating women and judging their characters because right now you're just looking to discharge, right? Oh, but, oh, no, but, I, so you're I, not looking for anything long term and you're looking for specifically physical, physical characteristics, but you need a sort of golden heart of maternal wisdom and good friendedness and, and health and happiness and positivity and a willingness to work hard because raising kids is hard work. And so you're going to have a whole different set of standards that you're going to need to develop, right? Oh, no, I know. I Standards I've got. It's just the matter is like when I look, when I meet a girl and I say to myself, "Well, you know what? She's going to be good for a couple of weeks." That's exactly what I'm looking for. But if I but if I'm out there actually looking for a woman that's a long term investment, it's a whole other set of criteria there. And it, it, to be honest, generally when I meet a woman that fits that criteria, I usually pull back. I don't I don't go for them. So I'll, you avoid women of uh, sort of spiritual quality, so to speak. <laughs> I don't want to get tied up with a girl that I could probably really get emotionally attached to while still doing this line of work. I don't want to be, I don't want to have this dilemma of, oh, I really love and appreciate this woman and want to have a life with her, but I've got a show to do on Saturday night and I've got to deal with the same shit that I deal with all the time. I'm much better at it now because after 10 years, it doesn't have the same appeal that it did before, but the appeal is still there. As long as I'm a man, I think the appeal will always be there. <laughs> it, it diminishes over time uh, you know as Socrates said in his old age being free of sexual desire is like having a demon ripped out of your heart and pushed through a blender you're free but no I so okay okay uh, so right uh, now here's something funny yeah, sorry go ahead just 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 a funny thing so with me and the guys we, we we're asking questions we do stupid things all the time so this is a silly uh, would you or would you not kind of question and, and uh, there's a difference between the younger guys and the older guys I bring it up because of what you just what you just mentioned 
So I asked the younger guys, you know, all the guys that are in their early 20s and maybe maybe into their early 30s, uh, you know, would you rather uh, have a micro penis for the rest of your life and have an additional 20 years on your life or would you rather maintain your penis size and lose 10 years on your life? Everyone in their early 20s wanted to lose 10 years on their life. They did not want to have a micro penis. Everyone in their 30s could not figure out exactly what to do. It was either or. Everyone 40 and older, they all wanted a micro penis. So everyone don't, don't Japanese guys live longer? But anyway, that's, uh, <laughs> that's for another time. Um, yeah, no, I, I, so obviously sexual, um, sexual hunger diminishes to some degree over time, which is, you know, uh, you know, when you're young, you think it's a disaster, but it's, it's really not. Look, I can concentrate. Um, so as far as, you know, being lazy or doing this or that, I mean, if you're still involved in the business, uh, in, in stripping, in the stripping business, do you feel that that might be an impediment to a very high quality, maternally inclined, great woman um, to get married to a guy involved in the stripping business? That sounds like a leading question. I genuinely, I'm not sure. So I'm just curious what you think. Okay, uh, two ways to approach that. One, if you're a dancer, yeah, uh, you, you, the woman will absolutely uh, hesitate, to say the least, to be with a guy uh, long term. Uh, but if you're, again, if you're on the back end, if you're in the business of selling tickets and organizing events and marketing and advertising a show, uh, you know, you're never taking off your shirt in front of the audience, obviously. So uh, I would imagine a woman being all for that. So if you're on the back end running the business, you can get married and there will be no problems. But if you're on the front end performing for the show, you're going to run into a wall. Well, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that. I know, but I could imagine that it's not like there's no problem. I mean, there's a difference between being a lawyer and running a strip club in terms of how a woman might perceive you. No, you're 100% right. But I, I will say this. The uh, owner of the, uh, the company I used to work for, I mean, he's, he's raking in millions a year. And his wife is, I mean, this guy makes maybe six figures on a Saturday night. So uh, I don't think any woman would sneeze at that. I mean, lawyers don't make the money he makes. So, you know, it's, it, it really depends on what kind of success you're experiencing. No, 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 sorry. But, but you're saying that the woman, the quality woman is only interested in the money. Ah, okay. All right. So, well, I mean, hey, look, she's a, she's a good mom to their children. She's, I, I don't know what their business is behind closed doors. But what it looks like from the outside looking in, it looks like a healthy, normal relationship. Okay. That's, that's well, again, you've seen yeah. it and I haven't, so I'm obviously going to take your word for it. No reason to, to not. So when it comes to sort of your life goals, mm -hmm. uh, certainly I, I would say that you're kind of in a groundhog day of noise and talking and sex and body oil, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of a groundhog day in that it's kind of tough to progress. You can't really get better at what you're doing after 10 years if what you're doing is mostly physical. You're right. right. And, and you know, so I think that the thing you're at the peak of, of what you can do. And, you know, as you age, it's, you know, going to decline in terms of what you can do. I mean, I, I can sort of keep getting better at what I do because it's sort of open ended and, and intellectual. But what you're doing is sort of crowd management plus physicality. You're kind of at the peak, which is kind of like this. I mean, is there anything that you would like to improve in what it is that you're doing? Uh, well, the reason why I wanted to start my own brand was because I feel like it's run very poorly. So uh, the business, after being in the business for so long. Oh, I, no, sorry. I, I just mean like as, as a dancer oh. and as a master of ceremonies, do you feel like you could do anything? Like is there anything where you say, wow, I'm really bad at this. I should work to improve it. 
uh, everyone can always be a better dancer. You can always be better in the sense of selecting your music and performing the, the song better or coming up with new tricks to wow the crowd. I mean, there's, there's, it, it, it's kind of like any other performance art. You can kind of go anywhere with it. But I mean, is it going to really bring you more money? I don't know. I, I think uh, well, it's it's incremental, right? It, and, and you know, obviously, if you chose more Enya as your musical backdrop, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, you probably know who that is. But anyway, so so you're kind of there's not anywhere for you to go, really, in terms of substantial improvements after you've been doing this for ten years and you're very successful. So that's why it's kind of like a Groundhog Day. Yeah. Uh, insofar as you know, if if you have a job that's manual labor, and to some degree, your job has manual labor elements to it. You can only get so good, right? And and yeah. then you can't, right? Yeah. And so that that aspect of things is one of the reasons why I think that you're kind of getting frustrated is that you're obviously a very intelligent person, ambitious person, and verbally acute person. So you, you want to do more, and yet your job is like kind of the same thing over and over. And so th- there's two aspects. Number one is figure out what you want to do professionally, and I mean – you, you have some good ideas that way, and it might be worth taking a couple of business courses or mentoring with someone in the business or paying them for their knowledge, time, and wisdom and so on because that's the one thing that I wish I'd done in business was to get more mentors, to have more mentors. It's tough. You know, software business in the 90s was a bit of a wild west. But anyway, uh, I think getting that kind of mentoring is important. But the other thing, of course, is your personal life. And um, the degree to which the life that you've led may have – not helped you develop the skills that make for a successful marriage partnership or or long-term parenting partnership, that may be the case. Because, you know, you've, you've spent your life doing a bunch of stuff, and that stuff is not what contributes to maintaining a healthy relationship in the long term with a woman who is your equal where it's not just about physicality, right? I mean, everything we do is stuff we're not doing, right? I'm I'm less good at yoga because I spend my time doing this show. And people who spend their time on yoga are less good at philosophy because they're doing yoga. Know, everything we do is everything else we're not doing. And so you've developed particular skills and abilities in this field. And you've had the relationship that you've had, you know, where it's a night or a couple of weeks, or as you said, 1.6 months. But you haven't developed the kind of skills that will serve you well in maintaining a permanent adult relationship. And I think that's important. I mean, if you want to go to therapy to learn about that or you want to read books to learn about that, that is a skill set that you don't have. Now, you're aware of the business stuff, right? Right. Uh, so you know that you've spent your time in the front rather than the back end of the business. And um, so but you I know have, you're going to need to learn stuff. I have go ahead. enough time in the back end. To know, but here's the thing. I think uh, aside from the people that are actually in the business right now that are actually doing the things that I think that I can do – I don't. I I honestly don't believe there's another person that's more qualified than myself to do this because I've done front end and back end. I've 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 worked on full circle. I, I I've organized my own shows. Uh, I've I've pretty much done everything that a person can do in this business except step on the gas and push it to its to to, to its you know ultimate limit. And so in other words, I've dabbled in running the actual business, but I've never committed to making it my full time thing. So, well, and you have, sorry, you have particular skills in that the business is run by the customers, and there are a few people, I imagine, in the business with more customer experience than you, not only as a dancer, but as a master of ceremonies, you know what works, and yeah. you know what the crowd responds to, that's been your job for years, so you have that front-end 
experience of what actually drives the business, which is customer satisfaction. So you're uniquely primed to do that. And you can do that, I would assume, with relatively little transition. But when it comes to long-term marriage, you have a skill set deficiency, right? Just because you pursued short-term relationships for a long time, so you don't have the same skill set for long-term relationships. And that's where I would focus, if I were you, that's where I would focus on on building up those skill sets so that I didn't try, you know, if I find the woman of my dreams and I'm ready to transition to uh, to non-dancing and so on, then you don't want to then start to learn how to get really good at long-term negotiations with a an equal based on shared values for the purpose of having a family and so on. I don't think you want to learn that then because you're smart enough to know where, when you're going to need to know something in the future. And I would start learning it now if you're interested in doing that transition in the next year or two. Mm. Do you think there's a relationship between uh, my, uh, you said, lacking the skill set in, uh, in, in commitments with, uh, with women and that also being maybe lacking the skill with commitments in uh, other endeavors, maybe like like I said, like maybe an entrepreneurial entrepreneurial project that I may set out for myself and then not follow through because well, it, you uh, you uh, you have a conveyor belt of goodies heading towards you, right? Yeah, I mean, how good a hunter are you going to be if you wake up to an overfull buffet every day? <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. you're you're mean and lean in the abs, but as far as ambition goes, it's been blunted by, you know, this endless reign of poontang and money and little effort and so on, right? Mm-hmm. So for sure, I mean, and that's been very uh, enjoyable, I would assume. We all, you know, you kind of have the life that a lot of men would, would envy and dream of. And, you know, it's great that you're sharing the upsides and it's great that you're sharing the downsides. But um, a lot of men have to work very hard for 1% of what gets handed to you every day. And so you've had that enjoyment but again, you know, uh, the muscle of, of willpower and commitment and follow through, which most men develop through endless series of brutal rejections. Right? <laughs> I mean, well, who's rejected you? The first time you got on stage, you made $500. What was it? There's a woman who came on who was a um, stripper who made like 450 or something. You even made $50 more <laughs> than a woman. So the first time, you didn't sit there and say, well, I really want to be a stripper. And, you, you, you know, like an actor who wants to make it big, you spend, you know, five years knocking on doors and doing auditions before you finally get your break or whatever. I mean, stuff was – now, you worked hard, as you say. You were an obese kid. So you worked hard and all that. But as an adult, you've had this conveyor belt of goodies come towards you, so it's not – too surprising to me that you'd lack a certain musculature when it came to um, pursuing goals in a really hyper-consistent way. That's more than fair. I, I, I agree with that. And it's not a criticism. No, it's, no, no. In no way, shape, or form is that a criticism. It's just I, sort of my observation. Exactly. You took the words right out of my mouth. It's a very fair observation. And I can admit to that. I, I definitely, uh, whenever I see a task that requires commitment, I see it as daunting and uh, almost not worthy of my time. Uh, oh, no, no, I'm sorry, no. what was not worthy of your time? Uh, if, if I set out a long-term task for myself. And, and you know what? Not worthy of my time is a long description. I want to say uh, not worth the cost. In other words, uh, the benefit that I might see for a, you know, a, a assumed project that might take a year, two years, three years, whether it be a relationship with a woman or maybe a business endeavor that I may have uh, 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 you know, in my mind, uh, I look at it and I might get started with it. And once I start realizing the costs of, of, of committing to something like that, I, I, I withdraw. I, I'm like, you know what? You know why I don't put myself through the required, uh, I guess you could say the friction required to get to where I want to get to. Once the rubber meets the road, I'm just kind of like, you know what? It's, it's, it's easier to, and I just find myself falling back into the place. Sure. Part. 
I mean, you, you don't build a house if you inherit a mansion, right? I mean, yeah. you build a house because you need to play. It's raining, and you know, you get bare house, you bare hands, you got to saw down logs, and right. So, I mean, that's natural. How many people these days decide to go and clear out a couple of acres of wilderness with their bare hands in order to, you know, and you go and some some developer did it already for you, and so on. So that I can I completely understand that uh, because you have. 90% pleasure in the here and now, which then goes down to like 20% pleasure in the here and now, or maybe even negative for possibly 100% pleasure in a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to make a rational case for that, right? No, you're right. Uh, it's, it sounds like, and, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like uh, a, a first step to, to, to getting better would be to just pull myself away from the dancing business, not, not, for, not permanently, but just long enough or away from the spotlight. Uh, just just to be able to exercise those muscles more and uh, work towards, in other words, make it part of the goal where I have a long-term goal that I'm working on. And as I build and get towards that goal, uh, additional to that goal will be my re-entry into the business sort of as a treat to myself for getting where I got or where I wanted to get to. That's, that would be something that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, does that make any sense or am I just spewing? Yeah, no, I, I think that does make sense. Um, how are you with saving not very good. Well, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm good when I want to be, and I'm terrible when I'm not paying attention. Well, that's the discipline thing, too, right? Yeah. Ooh, something shiny. I must buy it. <laughs> I mean, so uh, I can resist everything except temptation, as Oscar Wilde said. So, so saving is a, is a key part, right? Yeah. Because if you're, if you're doing what you're doing uh, and burning through the money that you're making, then you're really not left with much. Right. At the, when the smoke clears from your, you know, 10, 15, or whatever it is, your career. <laughs> So uh, the, certainly the discipline to save is really important because whatever you want to do next is the more savings you have, the better. You know, saving is choice. That, that's all it fundamentally is. Saving is free will. You know, if you've got no savings, you basically have very few choices in life, um, you know, it, when things start to change. But if you have savings, then you have choices. You know, I mean, just think of if you're, you know, some guy going for a job. If you have no savings and you've got bills due, you basically you're in no position to negotiate and you have to just kind of take whatever you can get. But if you're sitting on, I don't know, half a million dollars or whatever, then you can be a lot more picky and uh, choosy. I've always so, been able to keep myself above water, though. I've never I've never really dipped too low into debt or anything like that. I've, I've, if, no, but you should. You should. By, by the early 30s, yeah. you've been working for 10 years at a fairly lucrative profession. You should have some savings. Uh, and that I would make that as a particular goal straight up. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you accumulate ten billion dollars, say of screw you money, you can run for president, and you don't care what people say about you. <laughs> so yeah, save saving is the real key thing. And maybe this is just my Protestant upbringing or whatever, but debt has always given me hives, and um, I, I steadfastly guard um, the choices that I have by making sure that. I spend as little as humanly possible, you know, like I'm, oh, no, there's a light on upstairs. <laughs> you know, it's, it's crazy. I mean, a little too far sometimes. I will vouch but, for um, will. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Mike, Mike, how much fun is it to listen to me complain about somebody who left a phone charging in overnight? <laughs> I get on stuff for his uh, got to turn the light off thing. <laughs> Quite a bit. I'm literally thinking of getting motion sensors. And installing them where the light switches are. So you go, when people leave the room, it turns off on its own because that way I won't worry that someone somewhere – like there are people – you should drive through neighborhoods. There are people who leave lights on yeah. over their front door all night long. I can't even tell you what that does to me. <laughs> I mean 
It's like that the planet is dying so that you can light a step that no one's using for 12 hours. Anyway, um, so yeah, save. Uh, Saving because, you know, if you go into business, the more money you have saved up, the more you can invest, the more ownership you can get. I mean, everything you save now is going to pay off tenfold over time. I agree. This this is something that I've known, but it's like the ugly truth. It's like the fat person that that knows they got to put the donut down. It's like, ah, yeah. oh, shit, yeah. I gotta, I gotta save you know. money. Yeah, I, you know, I, you're you're a smart guy. You know that uh, you gotta be saving, and and now because you've deferred saving for a long time, you gotta save extra, right? Yeah. So getting you to talk about saving might be like getting I don't know Bernie Sanders to talk about the national debt. I went to his position page today mm-hmm. to prepare for this show. Lots of positions, no mention of the national debt. The only mention oh. of the word debt is. We want to eliminate college debt for students. Like, oh, oh no. Can you guys ever talk about it? No. Talk you about would lose debt. your mind. Everybody that I know in this business, especially, oh, my God, anyone anyone under 28 years old, they're, like, they're so brainwashed by Bernie. It's really bad. It's, you know, my Facebook feed is covered in just Bernie worship. Sure. It's sure. I mean, you know, free stuff appeals to young people who are not paying for it. I get that. My, you know, my, my daughter likes free candy. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it, I, and I've uh, I've shared your work many times on uh, on Facebook, and I've uh, even quoted uh, from like maybe sometimes like more powerful things that you said and and used it, and uh, and uh, listening to your shows has also given me a a train of like uh, I want to say like a, a way of thinking or a way of logistically looking at things with logic, and I'm able to actually have discussions with people even on Facebook, and 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 kind of like corner them with this Bernie Sanders BS, and it it it's still just they just you know they put their hands up and they're like they agree, but you know, Ernie's still, you know, Jesus reincarnated, so they're going to have to go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I I get that. I mean, it's 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 natural. And, of course, they're in government schools, so they don't understand that, uh, you know, here's how Bernie's going to pay for things. Really? I was, in a, I, was in, I was an econ major, actually, and I left during my third year because I couldn't stand paying for learning bullshit anymore. I mean, they really – I'm, I'm serious. I just – because I came from uh, – well, when I first left school, I was doing uh, physical education, and I was like, oh, I don't want to work in public school. They suck. And so I focused on dancing. And then I said, you know what? I need a backup plan. I'll go back to school. I go back for economics and um, just about to wrap up college. And I'm like, this is bullshit. I can't sit, sit through this. Now, at the time before going back for econ, I really got into uh, you know uh, Rothbard and uh, Austrian economics, and I I loved the subject, and I thought to myself, this is great. I can go to this college, and it's 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 a reputable school here in New York, and you know finance is a, an easy transition. And I go I go there, and I'm doing economics, and I'm just like, oh my god, this is terrible. I find myself getting into like these battles with professors and other students. And I'm like the I'm like the old guy in class, basically, in in my in my late twenties, and I'm surrounded by a bunch of these kids, and it was just it was just bad. So I I I, I gave up on that, and so you know. I still hear from my parents till this day. They're like, "You should have finished college." And I'm thinking, I did myself a favor. You don't. You're not going to get it. It's not what it used to be. It really isn't. No, it, it gets exhausting. Um, I mean, that was certainly for me. After a number of years in college, like, I'm, just, I'm just tired. I was tired of fighting these people and and paying them yeah. to tell me things that I vehemently disagree with. It's just not not a good. Not Especially thing, when I can be so. a capitalist every Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> right. You actually do the free market. Exactly. So I just have one last question, which yeah. is the next time I talk in New York, will you open for me? <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime. But you keep your clothes on. Just, you know, you, you'll be better at, you uh, know, if you've done that much better Steph, than anyone Steph, else. Steph, you broke my heart. <laughs> All right. So listen, I really appreciate the call. Let us know how it's going. And, um, you know, if there's anything that, that we can do to, to help as you go forward. 
you know, if you meet the girl of your dreams and you're having trouble with negotiations, uh, I hope you'll call in again. Um, it was a real, real pleasure to chat with you. And I thank you. You know, I always love it when people shatter my stereotypes, you know, and the econ studying Rothbard quoting male stripper uh, is, uh, uh, you know, is a male dancer is a uh, is a glorious detonation of all prior stereotypes. And I, I really appreciate that. Usman. It was a great pleasure to chat. I appreciate it, Steph. And thanks for everything you do. I've been listening to your stuff for a very long time. And if I can get my shit together, you'll be the first guy who gets a check. Oh, I appreciate that. That's why I'm saying safe. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Emil. And uh, we'll talk again. Take care. Bye. Take care. All right. Up next is Jenna. Jenna wrote into the show and says, I am in the throes of a United States presidential election discussion with academics and am confused by some of the positions being presented. Jenna, would you like to present a couple of those positions? <laughs> okay. Well, they are plentiful. Um, we're having a disagreement that there is, in fact, a refugee crisis in Europe. Well, let, let, why don't we take these uh, one at a time? Um, so um, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that his position is that there's not really much of a refugee crisis in Europe. Well, yes. Um, and that, in fact, the crisis is violence toward refugees. Yeah. And not you know, refugees inflicting violence on Germans. Right. Or, you know, the fact that uh, it's, what, 12 or 1,300 percent increase in rape in Sweden since the refugees came along. He would assume that that's because, what, uh, Swedish women are assaulting refugees with their vaginas? Is that his general position? <laughs> you know, I don't think so. He he basically has flooded me with information. Um, it's... <sighs> I think that he is just trying to overwhelm me so that I'll go away. But he links me to all these websites, which I consider to be propaganda. And I don't really know how to respond to that because, you know, he's an academic. So sourcing is probably more his thing than mine. Does that make sense? What is the information that he's provided to you that... Um that, that gives you pause, right? Maybe there's information that uh, I'm not aware of with regards to the refugee crisis that would uh, change my particular perspective. Um, what, what does he link that? that uh, is there anything he links that you find interesting or compelling? Well, what I find most interesting is that when I clicked on this link, it took me to a site that acknowledges absolutely nothing that we all know is going on. I mean, we hear about it on this show and many others. It, it's like opposite land. Bryce. Um, uh, see, okay, this is what happened. Uh, one of the things that I had explained um, was that um, he, he had told me to check statistics on refugees and crime. Refugees are, in most instances, one of the least likely groups to commit crimes. And so I responded, Cologne, Frankfurt, Sweden, Vienna, you know, Brussels, the proof's sort of in the pudding. And he says, this is selective. No one seems particularly concerned by mass shootings in the U.S. when they're performed by white Christians, even though they are numerically more significant Blaming refugees for problems when they are statistically an unproblematic group is a way of distracting people from real problems. Oh, okay. Uh, so uh, he's saying that there are shootings in America committed by white people, 
And that is sort of what? Underreported? It seems like they're very much reported on, right? He states that they are numerically more significant. Well, sure, because there's more white people than immigrants. I mean, of <laughs> course, right? I mean, if you just take the bit, like people say, well, whites are more on welfare than blacks. It's like, well, yeah, but blacks are 12 or 13% of the US population. So of course, there's going to be more whites on welfare than blacks, but it's proportional to the population that matters. Does he at all consider the, the, the possibility or the fact, really, that, that immigrant crime is underreported in the European Union? Uh, no, in fact, he's linked me to uh, a page that states that of 745,000 refugees admitted post 9-11, only two were charged with terrorist-related crimes anyway. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, the terrorist-related crimes are relatively – I mean, they're very dramatic, obviously, but they're relatively uh, small. Um, but so when he says that the refugees are not problematic, does he just mean that they commit less violent crime than Native population? Because, of course, one of the challenges is when you compare – Native populations with immigrant populations, it really depends what you're looking at. So, for instance, and just let's just make up some hypothetical country, uh, Libertopia, right? So, in Libertopia, there are a bunch of people who come from North Africa, and, and they want to come to Libertopia, and they want to get a better life, and so on. So, most likely, they're going to be more intelligent than the country that they're coming from, on average, right? Because they're the ones who've got the get up and go to get up and go, right? They're they're energetic, they're um, and and they can't stand their their country, right? <laughs> Enough that they want to leave leave the country, right? Like one of the reasons why Europe is in such a mess is that basically since 1492, the most intelligent, ambitious, and case selected people have left, you know, the rotting halls of ancestral Europe and come to the New World. Uh, and uh, this is why the new world has guns and the old world doesn't, because uh, there's been a K-selected exodus and an R-selected remainder uh, who now uh, are going to reap the fruit of uh, everything that they did to the K-selected people to drive them out. So you've got a bunch of smart people from North Africa coming to Libertopia, and sure, they're going to commit fewer crimes because, because they're smart, and smart people outside the Fed, <laughs> smart people commit fewer, what a generally commonly called crimes. You know, the smart people commit fewer crimes. So immigrants are a self-selecting group of more intelligent people than the domestic population. Now, anybody who talks about crime statistics without talking about race is falsifying and probably not even knowingly falsifying things entirely and completely. Because people say, oh, you know, there's terrible gun violence in... Um, in America, the terrible gun violence, like Americans just as a whole, are just crazy shooters. And this is not the case at all. There's lots of black gun violence, not a lot of elderly Asian ladies, you know, popping caps into people's asses or anything like that. Uh, so there are some statistics that say that if, uh, if New York City was all white, shooting, shootings would diminish like 95 or 96%. And so if you say, well, there's these immigrants and they commit less crimes than the domestic population. The question is, are you normalizing by IQ for the immigrants? Well, if you're not, then you're taking a self-selecting group of the smartest people in a particular area and saying, well, they commit fewer crimes. Well, of course, smart people of all 
ethnicities and groups create, uh, like, do fewer crimes. If you normalize for 115 IQ, then you get very few people committing crimes. Why? Because they're worth more in the free market, uh, and they can consider more the consequences of their actions, so crime is less valuable, and working peacefully is is more valuable. So that, uh, so if you're comparing just immigrants to just domestic populations without separating out things by race, that is ridiculous, right? And so the, the, the challenge is comparing white Germans to the second or third generation of Muslims. That's what you want to do. Because, of course, the smartest Muslims, like the immigrants to Germany from 20 or 30 years ago, were the smartest Muslims in general, I would assume. And I think it's good reason to believe it. And what happens is there is the regression to the mean, right? So the, the guys who come over, the guys, the tall Chinese guys who come over recruited by basketball teams, their kids aren't as tall because there's a regression to the mean, right? So whenever you have an outlier, there's a regression to, uh, to the mean. And so you, you want to compare third generation or I guess multi-generational or been here for a thousand years white Germans with not the first generation of immigrants, because that's a self-selecting group of high intelligent people, but lower intelligent uh, people who are most likely, when you come from a lower IQ group, it takes a couple of generations for the regression to mean to kick in, which is why second and third generation Muslims tend to be more radicalized in Europe, of course, right? And so if, if people aren't separating out this stuff and actually comparing apples to apples, then, yeah, I mean, you can make cases for a whole bunch of stuff if you ignore um, the factors uh, that, that are actually driving the information. Um, so you can go to cis.org slash immigrant crime, cis.org slash immigrant crime. And we've had Dr. Cam- uh, Stephen Camerata, who's um, the researcher, uh, uh, and he also works with Jessica Vaughn. He's been on the show, and uh, people can have a look at that. We can link that. Um, below, and uh, it's um, it's not great. You know, it's really, really not great. Uh, and of course, the idea that immigrants, and of course, people often differentiate, not differentiate between legal and illegal immigrants. Illegal immigrants have already committed a crime and that they've entered the country illegally, right? So the people who are claiming to be refugees who aren't refugees, right? And a significant proportion of the people coming in from the Middle East to Europe are not refugees. They're not. Countries are not at war. So they're not refugees. And if they do not land and stay in the country that they first touch soil on, you, you, to be a refugee, you can't, a refugee is not a buffet. You're not supposed to be able to just pick and choose your countries. So if you, in Germany, given that Germany is only open, sorry, I got that wrong before, only open to the sea by the north, and they're not sailing all the way around past England up the channel to the north of Germany, uh, given that uh, Germany, uh, it's not very easy to get to Germany from the Middle East by boat. Uh, and so the m- people who claim to be, um, uh, they claim to be escaping a, a war zone. Well, if they're not escaping a war zone, then they already have committed an illegal action. And if they have moved on from the country they first landed into another country, they've also committed an illegal action. And therefore, um, they're already criminals by definition, if they've fulfilled either of those two conditions. So, again, people can come up with all of the manipulative stats that they want, 
but uh, it really just comes down to to one thing. But I just sort of want to get your feedback on on that stuff so far. Basically, I think that the word statistically is a problem because the sort of people who maybe were immigrants 30 years ago who were coming over for a better life and wanted to be productive members of society cannot really be compared with people who are just, you know, rushing in for free stuff now, if that makes sense. And also that statistically, (laughs) there are no statistics yet. We're watching it unfold before our eyes. We're watching our civilization take a dive it's in real time. We don't have statistics yet. What are we going to wait for? We're going to wait for some statistics to be gathered and go, oh, well, we're, you know, we're fucked. I mean. <laughs> well, we, we and, and we don't in a sense, right? What's, the, what's their old joke? Islam is an acronym for invade sovereign lands and multiply. But um, we already have a look at the countries that these people are coming from. And that's the culture they're used to. And that's the situation that they want. And for people who say, well, it's not a problem. They don't understand, and this is what's so frustrating about people who talk about immigration, because they view the government as this smorg dragon sitting on an infinite pile of treasure. They don't understand the opportunity cost of immigration. The opportunity cost of immigration is that for every immigrant who comes in, give or take, rough estimate, for every immigrant who comes in, you get one less native-born person. It's not. It's a zero-sum game. You get an immigrant coming in, that means taxes go up, that means housing prices go up, that means educational quality goes down, that means opportunities go down because fewer jobs are created. And so when you get an immigrant come in, that means one less native-born German is going to be in the country, right? So for every Middle Eastern immigrant who comes in, that's one less white German kid who's going to be born. So it's a displacement. It's not like Germany plus a whole bunch of immigrants. It's Germany plus a whole bunch of immigrants minus a whole bunch of native-born Germans. It is a displacement. Right. And and, and that's what people don't understand, that it's it's not Germany, you know, with a hat. It's Germany with a hat and no head. (laughs) Sorry, go on. Well, just over the course of these classes and these discussions, some things have come up. And one of them was um, Fukuyama's piece, The End of History. And... In, in which he states that everyone is heading toward classical liberalism and that the really only threats to that are nationalism and theocracy. And with regard to theocracy, you know, it's just small pockets, uh, isolated populations, etc. And so I asked him in that class, you know, has he accounted for the rising birth rates um, in some civilizations as compared with the declining birth rates in the West. Because demographically, it wouldn't take that long for us to be outnumbered, right? And what did he say? Uh, His stock answer whenever I speak is... Well, maybe it's hard to know. Really, math is math is that tough for him? I, <laughs> I thought it was a solid point, and it it, it is a, it is, and of course, he's supposed to be political science. It's like here's some basic math. 
Well, that's tough to know. It's like, then it's not a science, is it? If, the, if it can't even handle basic math and extrapolation of population growth based upon differing birth rates, it's not even close to voodoo, let alone science. Yes. You know, but, but we see this mentality everywhere. And, and all it is, is a desperate desire for there to be no conflict. That's all there is. And, and of course, when there is two groups whose interests are opposed, and in terms of Sharia law versus historical German law, these are opposed. These are opposing systems. If, if Sharia law wins, native Germans lose. If Sharia law wins, native Europeans lose. Except those native Europeans who want Sharia law, right? Everyone else loses. So there's a conflict. And cowards look at a conflict and they never, ever look at the facts. What they do is they say, who is the least reasonable person? Who is the most aggressive person? Who is the most dangerous person in this conflict? Okay, I'm going to side with them. And I'm going to screw and shaft the most reasonable person. Why? Because they're cowards and they align themselves with whoever's in power, whoever's more dangerous to them, right? Because if he starts talking about problems with Islamic incursions into Europe, well, he's going to get called a racist. He's going to get called a bigot. He's going to get called whatever, 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 right? Yes. And, and, and he knows that you're not going to cause any particular professional trouble for him if he disagrees with you, right? Right. And that's why, that's why the West has already lost. I mean, the, the West has lost. We're trying to get it to not lose again in the future. But the West is no longer judging conflicts by any objective standards or values. They're only judging conflicts by who's more dangerous to my immediate self-interest. I'll side with them. And who's the most reasonable and rational person? Okay, I'm going to side with whoever's more dangerous and screw that person. Socialists are more aggressive than capitalists. Why? Because capitalists have jobs. Don't have the time, <laughs> right? So this is why you see the Bernie, the Bernie and Hillary supporters, not uh, all of them, of course, right? But the ones who are showing up, they're really aggressive. They're punching horses. They're spitting in people's faces. They're blocking traffic. They're blocking ambulances. They're causing a whole bunch of trouble. Whereas the Donald Trump supporters, eh, pretty reasonable for the most part, right? They're not out there doing all these terrible things. And so the media is siding with the Bernie Sanders and the Hillary Clinton and the, the Democrat supporters and against the Donald Trump supporters. And that's how you know which group is most reasonable. I don't need any other facts to know which group is the most reasonable. Whenever there's a conflict in society, I look for who the majority sides with. And I know immediately and absolutely that that is the least rational, most aggressive, most dangerous party who should be the most strongly resisted. But the fact that everyone is siding with them is clear evidence that that person is in the wrong. Whoever the majority is following is the most dangerous person around, almost certainly. Right. You sound like my husband. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, uh, 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 Donald Trump accurately records, reports the problem of rape in the Hispanic community. Are the feminists like, wow, you know, that is a real rape culture. We'd better, ha, huh, we got to get behind these numbers because Donald Trump is actually bringing to light something we've been trying to talk about, which is Hispanic community has problems with rape. No, none of that. None of that. He's a racist. Even though people tell me being Hispanic is not a race. But anyway, which I'm sure is true. But um, well, yeah, I mean, it's got nothing to do with, with any facts. They're just, they're just who's, who's got the most power? We're going to side with them. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, now that, 
Trump has come up, I'll mention that how this whole discourse began is that he had made some statements about um, his preferred U.S. candidate. I decided to email and, you know, ask for him to clarify some of his positions. So basically, um, he, of course, thinks Trump is evil because, you know, everybody does. And that he d- he described Clinton as center-right and Sanders as moderate. Moderate. And, and, and so <laughs> I said, you know, like, I don't even think Sanders is moderate adjacent. Like, this is not... <sighs> It's unconscionable to me that anyone would say that. And I just the fact that I don't think that Trump is Hitler means that I am a racist bigot. That is how I'm seen and a crazy person. Yeah. So the field is not level. And I, I do resent that. And that that guides and 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 it influences what you say and what you write. And I mean, I remember taking a course on, communism and um yeah it was it was it was tough because you have to um you have to figure out if you want to pass but at the same time you don't want to betray your values but you got to pass <laughs> it's tough that's quite a tightrope i i will say that i've come to really enjoy math <laughs> right right <laughs> mm, i really appreciate the objectivity of math these days but anyway um sanders moderate uh, i don't even know where to start yeah i mean and what does that even mean what is that i mean there are there are groups in europe they're called far-right parties why because they want to enforce immigration laws they they accept the welfare state they accept old age pensions, they accept the nationalization of huge sections of the economy, they accept socialized health care, they accept the government should be in charge of just about everything, except the computer industry, they accept massive government works, they accept hugely high taxes, which are all left-wing positions, and they want to enforce existing laws, suddenly they're on the far right! It's like, that makes no sense whatsoever. If they were on the far right, they'd be arguing for the complete separation of state and economics. They'd be arguing for the end of the welfare state. They'd be arguing for privatizing healthcare. They're not doing any of that. So they're exactly the same as leftist parties, except they want to enforce immigration law. Suddenly, they're all to the right of Mussolini. I mean, that's completely mental. Yes, and I've been listening to it for months. So I agree with you. I mean, every Eastern European country that we discussed first bullet point that they now have a terrible hard right government that is doing, you know, awful things like refusing refugees. Uh, but, but what are the Republican positions that have been enacted that are impeding the sort of socialistic creep in, in America in any way, shape or form? I mean, they've, they've not overturned Obamacare. They've not uh, pushed back on government debt. They've not cut spending. They've not fired a whole bunch of government workers. I mean, they, they've failed to do any of the things that the Republicans, they've certainly failed to enforce any immigration laws or, or, or seal the borders or anything. And so, 
when people start talking about the Democrats and the Republicans rather than any kind of principles, eh, you know, they're just like, like sports commentators. There's no moral content. It's just teams versus teams, you know, different colored jerseys. Exactly. And that's the point I'm making. I'm, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a conservative. You know, my, my positions are go deeper than that. And so, but his assumption that I am, you know, I guess just a, a wasp that is going to think certain things automatically. Well, you're bigoted, right? I mean, and, and I understand the principles that lead people to accept that because people on the left believe that everyone is fundamentally the same. Everyone is fundamentally the same. Women are the same as men. Therefore, any differences in male-female earnings must be due to sexism. Blacks and whites are absolutely the same. Therefore, any differences in outcomes must be the result of racism. Rich and poor are absolutely the same. And therefore, any widening income disparity must be the result of exploitation. The capitalist and the worker are basically the same. Therefore, the fact that the capitalist makes more money must be as the result of him stealing from the workers. So I, this fundamental idea that everyone is the same is what leads them to accept or to believe that anyone who says, I don't, I have problems with this particular group of people, well, everyone's the same. Therefore, it can only be irrational bigotry that would result in you having that opinion, right? People with freckles, eh, pretty much the same as people without freckles. But if you say, I have real problems with people with freckles, well, given that having freckles or not having freckles is not any kind of foundational dispositional tendency, well, must be just some, I don't know, who 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 with freckles hurt you? You know, like, I mean, it, it wouldn't make make any sense. And so now, of course, the fact that everyone's the same and, and people are just going to adapt to their local environmental circumstances, they say they believe that, but they don't actually believe that because otherwise they'd invite a bunch of right-wingers in and convert them all to socialism uh, by having them work side by side, right? And, and the fact that they don't ever hire anyone from the right in universities means that they know for sure that people have their beliefs, they have, and they won't change. And so if they can't even convert a local person on the right to a socialist, how are they expecting to convert Muslims to Western ways of thinking over time? Right. And why is there not a push from socialist professors to get more inclusive professors accessible to the students? Why do you guys shut out perpetually and continually anybody to the right of K. Guevara? And why isn't there a push to get this massively underrepresented group? Like if, if blacks were half the population and there were no blacks in academia, wouldn't that be any cause for self-reflection about maybe that the academia was hostile towards blacks and they either were not getting the jobs or not being hired? Or I went to three different colleges, universities. I went to York University. I went to McGill. I went to the University of Toronto. I went to theater school, but what can you expect, right? Didn't have one conservative professor the whole time. I mean, they were all radical leftists. Hiring someone who's a conservative would probably be like going to a biology department and saying, how come you're not hiring creationists? They're just so self-obviously incorrect and wrong and retrograde and racist and repressive and sexist and homophobic and, right, like they're just completely and totally in the wrong and therefore they, they would have no place in educational facilities. 
you know, this virtue signaling, they absolutely, completely and totally believe that they're in the right and they're good and there's no debate. Like, you know, when they say that debate is over, you're on the wrong side of history, it's current year plus one. You know, why would you do this? It's 2015. Like, why would you? It's like going to a doctor and saying, hey, do you have any bucket of leeches to help me with my UTI? It's like, no, that we don't. We don't do that anymore. Here's, here's some here's some pills, right? I mean, it's it's really old, regressive, ancient, stupid thinking. So they're just waiting for us to die out, presumably. And and they're right. <laughs> that's that's what's happening. I mean, that's why they're bringing in so many third worlders into America, in particular, because they're just able to displace, right? Um, somebody. You know, and again, sort of the unvetted comments that make you go, hmm. Somebody wrote, um, said, Brazil was a nice country in the 1950s, safe, pretty organized, actually similar to the United States, the main cities like Sao Paulo, Rio, and the South, just poorer in the 1950s, pretty nice country. It was 65% European, similar to what the U.S. is today. Now, Brazil is about 45% European. And it's turned into your average third world corrupt whole shit heap, right? So going from 65% European down to 45% European has pretty much meant the end of Brazilian culture and civilization, at least as it used to functionally work in the 1950s. And of course, that's the direction that the US is going in. It's following down the path of Brazil, right? Used to be 90% 90 European. Now it's down to about 65%. In a decade or two, it's going to be down to 45%, and then it's going to turn into the same third-world shithole banana republic that Brazil is is heading towards. So, um, but everyone's the same, you see, and and therefore anybody who has any preferences must be discriminating in a bad way. That's the theory, right? Right. Now, what's it, what's it like for you to, to go into these uh, situations? Um in social situations, it happens uh, all over the place. Um, and what's it like for you to live in this? Because, you know, we, we, don't, we don't hear a lot about that from people. I'm losing friends by the day. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm fine with it. I, this, is, this is like breathing for me. If I wasn't doing this, I would be dead already. So, you know, I just need to find more appropriate friends and contacts. But yeah, basically people are just backing away slowly. And I mean, I have to be fine with that because my principles and the things that I believe are not negotiable. They can't be because that's death itself, if that makes sense. No, it is. No, um, it makes total sense. Yeah, uh, school is incredibly tense. I mean, unless you just ignore all your principles and write what you know they want you to write and things like this, it's a battle every day. I mean, people sneer. <laughs> I, I, I mean, don't feel sorry for me. I'm asking for it. Because I go in knowing full well the response I'm going to get. But it's stressful, to be honest. It's quite stressful. Yeah. And, of course, 
when you're dealing with brainwashed people, there's no really good way to play that. I'm trying to engage people, not, not to change their minds, to understand where they're coming from and, and maybe to help them understand. Because this perception, for example, that anyone who thinks that Donald Trump has made some good points, they just assume that you're a, you know, uneducated, drooling, mouth breather, you know, with no education, no, no mind. And so I suppose I'm trying to explain to people where I'm coming from and where I think other people are coming from, which is basically, you don't have to be a a fool or a clown to hear what this guy is saying. You really only have to be a person who recognizes that you know, your neck is under a left-wing boot. And this is the source of Trump's mass appeal. And he's not just popular with morons. I mean, there are, there's a whole cross-section of society that, you know, is hearing what he's saying, and it's resounding. The perception here, I mean, certainly in the walls of the university is that it, you are an you are batshit crazy if you think this guy has anything to say that's all there is to it and i suppose eh, not for trump I mean, trump doesn't need me but i'm just trying to it seems unjust to me and so i'm trying to talk to people about what might factor into supporting Trump other than being a mutant. And not just Trump. I mean, right thinking in general. Right. Is it a, I mean, I, I think everybody who deals with these issues, uh, Jenna has the same basic question, which is, uh, I mean, is it a fool's quest? Is it, is it just far too late? Well, it, it may be. And ultimately, I don't even know if Donald Trump has any any intention. I don't know if this is his idea of a massive social experiment just to prove how unhappy people are, just to get people. I, uh, I, I think he's got better things to do with his time and wealth than perform massive social experiments that have him wear a bulletproof vest every time he gives a speech. <laughs> I think he has better things to do with his time than try to figure out that mess but anyway so the the thing about the wall came up and how oppressive walls are and historically walls are are built only to oppress people and these sorts of things and i tried to explain that actually you know i think that intent comes into it that walls are built either to oppress or to fortify, <laughs> that I see this wall as more of a fortification. And furthermore, that I actually don't even believe there will be a wall. You know? Well, also, I mean, when it comes to universities, you're not allowed into the class if you haven't paid. They've got walls around the class, and they'll call security if you come in there, particularly if you disrupt. You cannot come in to the class unless you've paid. So they have walls around the actual classroom which keep people out 
And they're saying that walls are oppressive and should not exist. Yeah. And there are also walls around the A pluses. I mean, for a bunch of people who don't believe in merit, why isn't everyone getting an A? I, I don't. What they say. Well, you, you can get an A often if you just parrot back. Anyway. <laughs> but, <laughs> and also, professors, can you. Uh, can you become a professor if you don't have a PhD? There's even a wall around his profession. You can't go up and start a university. You can't get accredited unless you hire the right people with the right credentials. You need to get licenses from the government, uh, at least defended by the government. So he's got walls around his entire job that nobody can come in and compete with him. Well, and they've walled out everyone on the right, as you mentioned before. Yeah. We don't want undesirables coming into academia. <laughs> what? At least they're not going to rape people. Well, and uh, this is a point that I had made also about Christians, because we were talking about Christianity versus Islam. And I, which he said is just as violent and maybe more violent and expansionist. And so I said, well, no, I mean, it, it took... Christianity, 800 years to accomplish a third of what it took Islam to do in 130. And, you know, that, that information is just meaningless. He just says that any ideology that says it's better than any other ideology is inherently violent. And so I thought, okay, well, let's... Wait, wait. So any ideology that says it's better than any other ideology is inherently violent? Yeah. So, so does, but isn't he saying that his ideology is better than Trump's? Well, I suppose he is. Wow. That, that takes a special kind of education. Right. And that's how I sometimes feel. I feel like these people have educated themselves into stupidity. It, it's weird. I mean, you can't find an academic source. You can't write unless you use a peer-reviewed academic source. But these are all left-wing people sharing a brain, as we have already established. So you can't find a source that says anything else or that indicates anything else. If you do, you can't use it or, you know, you'll be docked, right? So the whole system is just set up so that you either pretend to agree or you push back and accept the consequences. But you can never prove anything to these people. Why are you there, Jenna? I am changing careers. And unfortunately, no one will give me an IQ test and hire me. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I need a piece of paper. Right. Okay. Right. However, being there has, I mean, it's a blessing and a curse. It has really opened my eyes. I had no idea. 15 years in the workforce, I had no idea what is, I mean, I had an idea, but no idea the extent of the brainwashing, indoctrination, and, you know, I see it as a gift to know. I'd rather know than not know. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty bad when I was in college, um, which I guess is uh, a little over 20 years ago now. 
And I, th- I mean, I, I think it's, it's what, what young people sort of contact me and say, Steph, you don't want us like to date now. You were dating decades ago. And well, you know, I've been married for, I've known my wife for 14 years, married 13, but uh, I think it is, uh, I think it's a different world even now. Yes, it is. I'm even just the, the way things have progressed. I mean, when I was 18, we were told that we had to tolerate certain types of people. But now we have to be absolutely in love with them and everything that they do or we're bigots. I mean, that shift is significant. Right. Right. I think I'm trying to to help people to realize that there is a lot more going on than racism and bigotry. Probably that's not going to work either. And ultimately, I guess there are just people that aren't worth it. Because I used to think that you, you know, should engage people who disagree with you and, and, and have conversations and that this was how we learn and grow and progress. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that, but you got to pick your fights, right? It's, you know, as the old saying goes, it's almost impossible to get a man to understand something when his entire livelihood depends upon him not understanding it. Oh, so then we just leave these people in their bubble to continue to indoctrinate basically children. And then we just hope that those people figure it out when the real world happens and they understand that. Well, no, no, listen, I mean, that's maybe a bit of a false dichotomy. First of all, your odds of changing this guy's minds, in my opinion, and again, I don't even know who he is. It doesn't matter, but it, it, no, you're not going to, it's, it's not going to, I mean, imagine, imagine if he starts changing his mind, he starts thinking about being at least accepting of some of the perspectives that Trump supporters have or whoever, right? doesn't matter, right? Let's just say he goes against the lefty herd. Well, what's going to happen? He's going to be shunned by his colleagues. He's going to be attacked by his friends. He's, um, you know, he probably has tenure, so he probably can't be fired, but nobody wants to go into work with people who aren't going to talk to them every day, right? I mean, that's not a whole lot of fun. He's not going to get invited to any conference, conferences. Uh, people are going to send around immediately that this guy seems to have slid into rampant bigotry and racism and this and that and the other. He's not going to get his papers published anymore. And he's going to get a lot of complaints from his students. You know, I didn't sign up to be taught by a racist. Just just think, and this is just off the top of my head, just think of the dominoes that will fall should you get through to this guy. Maybe his wife doesn't want to be married to a racist. Maybe his kids don't want to get called sons and daughters of a racist in school. Well, you right? know what, though? I mean, he can stay in the closet, we all have one. We carry it around with us. I say certain things in certain... I have no closet. <laughs> no, I have well, the fortune to not have a closet. But go ahead. You, you, you don't. <laughs> but, you know, there are situations where you don't leap up and say the first thing that comes to your mind, right? Um, yes. Again, maybe not you. 
No, 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 of course, of course, of course. Um, you know, you, you have a game face, you have... So, I mean, I'm not saying that he has to just troll everyone at the university and, you know, become a huge shitlord and ruin his career. And, and But, I mean, there could be recognition, maybe. I mean, he has a brain, he can think. No, but tell me, what is the, what is the upside for that? Right? And I'm willing to hear it. I mean, maybe there's a... What like if I was this guy and you were giving me this sort of Faustian bargain, why would I want to know that? Why would I want to know that what I'm teaching people is probably propaganda? What's the upside? Well, what's the I can't act on it because I'm, I, I can't change what I'm doing. I can't like like why why would I want that? It's in the knowing. It's in the knowing. An ugly truth is better than a pretty lie. Okay, that's a phrase, but. You have to why know. Would I, like, give me the practical reasons why I would want to know that. Because not knowing what's going on around you is dangerous. But not for him. He's, he's got a great job. He's got a great career. He's got, you know, he only has to work 10 hours a week. He's got summers off. He's got sabbaticals. He's got conferences they fly him to. How on earth is ignorance not bliss for this guy? Well, because if this stuff is as serious as I believe it is the, you know, the status quo is going to change. Oh, so your long-term consequences, right? Right. That's, right. that's my case. But if they were, look, if anybody was interested in long-term consequences, there'd be no national debt, right? Okay. The, the whole current system is founded upon burning the future to feed the present. And uh, he's doing very well in the present. That's terrifying. That is utterly terrifying. No, but this is this is the people you. This is the our selected people we live among. <laughs> Jenna, I mean, you, you you say a painful truth. Okay, here's your painful truth. Oh, we want to say we're really worried about the climate, and it might go up a degree or two or three in a hundred years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys are all so concerned about the future. That's why you're burning up the kids' futures with. National debts, right? I mean, the, right. it is consumption in the present for this. They don't care about the future. This is our selection. K's care about the future. This is why you cannot have a society where people who worry try to commingle with people who don't worry. You are consumed with worry about the future, Jenna, because you're K-selected. Because you care about whether you're going to eat in the spring and you're willing to be hungry now so that you can eat in the spring. Because if you don't, you got nothing to plant and you're dead, right? So people who worry... Build great civilizations. People who don't worry then come to those civilizations and burn them to the goddamn ground. So you worry. And that's, to some degree, biological. I mean, the knowledge helps, and, and, but you worry about the future. Other people don't worry about the future. If people worried about the future, they wouldn't get fat. They wouldn't smoke. They wouldn't drink to excess. They'd save their money. They'd do all the things that K-selected people generally tend to do, right? But they don't care about the future. They only are interested in the present. Sacrificing the present for the sake of the future is ridiculous. It's like ask, asking an atheist to forego masturbation so he'll get into heaven. <laughs> and believe in heaven. So this is the reality of the people you're surrounded by. You're screaming at people, but what about the future? But what about the future? And they, in the long run, we're all dead. 
Have I got enough? Is it comfortable for me for the next five minutes? That's what people care. It's not exactly a function of intelligence. Very, very intelligent are selected people. How comfortable is my next five minutes going to be? Okay, well, politicians, we see this all the time. This is why the Democrats don't talk about the national debt. This is why there's no single moms for repudiating the uh, single moms for dealing with the national debt organization. How comfortable is it for me for the next five minutes? That's all. Now, Donald Trump is an exception to that. He's willing to say things that get him into a lot of trouble because he has a longer picture. His legacy, as he talked about last night, his legacy is he wants to save America. That's a pretty cool legacy. So he's willing to take the hits in the here and now because he wants to leave a legacy for the next thousand years. Thousand years, they'll still be talking about Churchill. And if Trump does what he says he's going to do, what he says he wants to do, they will be talking about Donald Trump for a thousand years. That's a pretty cool legacy. Now, with Bernie Sanders or, or Hillary Clinton, in my opinion, what do they care about? They're caring about popularity and a minimum of discomfort and a minimum of conflict over the next five minutes, right? And this is what, this kind of mindset, again, I don't know this guy, but I'm, you know, this kind of mindset, in my opinion, this is why people are, in Europe, squashing immigrant crime numbers. Because if they tell the truth, there's going to be conflict. And this desire to buy five minutes peace by pushing conflict down the road. Now, of course, all the conflict that's pushed down the road just makes it worse when it finally hits, which is why I'm trying to provoke disagreement through the explication of facts in the here and now. Because, you know, if I've, if I've got to, in a sense, drag someone to the doctor to get the lump at their neck looked at, they got to go because the longer you don't go, the worse it's potentially going to get. Well, this is just it. There's going to be conflict either way, but would you prefer a conversation or a civil war? This is sort of where where I am. Right. And that's because you're K-selected and you care about the future. And the R-selected people, do, do the rabbits need to plant more grass for next year? No. Grass is just always going to be growing. No, no, but they are going to be affected by said, you know, civil war. Yes, yes, and every rabbit that has sex and gives birth to another six rabbits is potentially going to end up starving to death because there are too many rabbits. Does that mean they put in their tiny little furry condoms? No. (laughs) They have no capacity to overcome the impulse of the moment with the fear of the future. Wow. Wow. It doesn't take brain surgery to figure out that big problems are coming to Europe. And people would rather have five minutes, five days, five months, or even five years more peace, relative peace, and then it all goes to hell, rather than have rational conversations based on facts in the here and now and possibly avert disaster. And the funny thing, too, is that when it comes to Islam— There are a lot of Muslims who first came to Europe who came to Europe because they liked Europe and didn't like the Middle East. So you're actually really screwing the decent Muslims who came to get away from the crazy Muslims by letting the crazy Muslims overrun Europe. You're actually really harming the decent Muslims who came because they wanted some freedom and they wanted some escape from the low-rent, slope-and-forehead aggressiveness that goes on in a lot of those countries. So it's not even kind to the decent Muslims and the the reasonable Muslims and the intelligent Muslims who came along because they wanted to get out of that hellhole. Ah, the hellhole has now caught up with you. And 
I mean, the 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 the, the radical Muslims or the fundamentalist Muslims hate the moderate Muslims as much as they hate everyone else. The whole goal of ISIS at the moment is to is to provoke attacks against Muslims from Europeans so that they say, ah, you people who are on the fence, you people who are in the gray zone, they call it. Wow, you're going to realize just how much the Westerners hate you and they're going to oppress you and then you're going to have to fight. They're pushing to radicalize everyone by creating endless series and waves of attacks because they hate the moderate Muslims about as much as they hate everyone else. In fact, they hate them more in some ways than they even hate the Christians who at least have not been exposed to Islam. So of course it's all going to, of course it's all it's all going to cause problems. But people are just avoidant because it's more comfortable in the here and now. And there's tons of people who'll sell you the drug of the now, and pretend that the future won't happen. Conversations with you are so terrifying. Be afraid, be very afraid. But no, and the reason I'm saying this is not because I want you to be terrified. Jenna, but because I want you to save your energies for where it can do the most good. And I don't think it is in that particular environment, having these kinds of conflicts. Okay. Uh, it wasn't a complaint. And um, where, where do I go? Where do people like me go to do good? Well, I think the internet. Right. I mean, uh, that's uh, just the uncensored place. Right. And you know the, the triage thing, right? The people who will survive on their own, you don't need to treat immediately. The people who are going to die, you don't need to treat. But the people for whom your treatment will be the difference between life and death, that's how you focus on. Okay. In, in an emergency situation, the doctor's job is to walk past the beds and to go to the beds where he or she can make the most difference. Right. And and the good news is Americans' trust in the mainstream media is down to 6%. 6% of Americans trust the mainstream media. Thanks, Don. <laughs> so, okay, so they're going to go someplace else for their information. Some of them already have. Ones that are savable will tune in. This is how society is rebuilt. Yeah. The people who said... The people who said it was coming will gain credibility after it comes. The idea of preventing it now is hard to picture. I'm, you know, certainly working as best as I can and as hard as I can to help to prevent it. But it seems impossible to imagine. Like, I mean, we all know what's going to happen this summer, right? What's going to happen this summer is Donald Trump, if he continues to gain traction, there's going to be more and more protests and the protests are going to get ugly. And the protests are going to come from the, the takers who don't want the makers shaking them off. Uh, they're going to come from the leftists. And um, the, they're going to get obviously increasingly desperate as the dopamine of state power may be cut off for these addicts. And the protests are going to get ugly. And the mainstream media is going to blame who? Trump. Yeah, of course. Of course. Because if Donald Trump wasn't doing what he's doing... Everything would be just fine. And therefore, the fact that it's not fine must be entirely the fault of Donald Trump. This is the weird, magical thinking. If I don't go to the doctor, I'm not sick. Staggering. But I, am see, I see that. I get that now. We were all together until Donald Trump came along with his facts. 
Yes, it's it's not that people are completely unaware that there are problems. It's that they really just resent having their little boat rocked. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of stuff is is hidden, right? I mean, when you look at the actual statistics of the number of Muslim immigrants to Western countries, like I almost have to put on a blast helmet to read those statistics because they just make my testicles shrivel into raisins. It's just like, what the hell? What? Whoever voted for this? Millions and millions. It's like, oh my God, seriously. I know, just take I know. a breather. And a couple of little countries say, um, yeah, no, we know this is a bad idea and they're just slammed. It just Yeah, it but the beautiful like thing that. is they don't care. <laughs> right. No, they don't care because they already had their fights. Well, they had their fights with communism, they had their fights with Muslims, and they want to hang on to what they've got. Yes. Never thought... And, and people, people in the West who, who live for nothing in particular have a great deal of trouble empathizing with an, and I mean, sympath not sympathizing, but empathizing, empathizing with people who have a big, grand world mission. W what's the big, grand world mission of Europe other than political correctness and self-flagellation and cultural suicide? Like, what is their big mission? Well, Islam has a big mission. Communism had a big mission, and they were willing to make sacrifices for it. And so it has been generations since Europe has had any kind of big mission, you could say colonialism was the attempt to bring European civilization to the rest of the world was a big mission. Surviving the two world wars, not a greatest mission, but obviously a pretty important one. And the last big mission that Europe had post-war, other than, you know, standing somewhat firm against communism, which is more of a reaction, but the, the sort of big positive mission was income redistribution within and between societies. That was, that was the last big mission. Last big mission was the welfare state, both within the countries, and by that I include government schools and, and uh, free healthcare or socialized healthcare and all that kind of stuff, right? It was income, re using the power of the state to make society equal, to, to give poor people great opportunities, to you know take away some of the unjust earnings of rich, well, whatever. The, massive income redistribution was the last big Western utopian goal. And it was within the countries and of course through foreign aid, it was supposed to make the third world like Europe. Massive resource transfers within and between countries was the last big European mission. It's been a complete failure. Absolutely. And, and within societies. I mean, if the war on poverty was a thing, then, you know, we'd be looking at amazing results right now. And just taking away things from people who are good with resources and giving them to people who are bad with resources, there's just no way that you can expect that to be a smashing success. But, um, of course, the response to that is um, that rich people just have more room to make mistakes than poor people. It's not that poor people are bad with money. So now I also... If the welfare, no, if the welfare state hadn't come in, there'd be no involuntary poverty anymore, functionally. I mean, few people might have brain tumors or whatever. But if the welfare state hadn't come in, because poverty was declining one percentage point every single year from the 1950s until the welfare state came in. You continue that trend. Decades ago, we would have ended poverty in the West. Decades ago, we would have ended poverty. Right. But poverty now happens to be easier 
And so a certain number yeah. of people are going to choose it, right? Yeah. And there's the welfare cliff. So a lot of places in the States to get off welfare, you have to get a job to get the equivalent of welfare benefits. You have to get a job that pays you $65,000 a year. Not that easy. If you've got a, <laughs> two kids and no high school diploma, not the easiest thing in the world to suddenly vault into making 65000 And that's just to break even. And so if you're on welfare, being you're taxed at effectively more than 100% rate up until about 65000 Then you start making a few pennies on the dollar. <laughs> Right. So, I mean, you couldn't design it. You couldn't design it to be more creating and entrapping and perpetuating of, of poverty. Right. I mean, so everything that Europe has turned to over the past 150 years has kind of turned to shit. Colonialism turned to shit. And then First and Second World War, public schools, income redistribution, health care, welfare foreign aid. It's all turned to shit. Because about 150 years ago, it was the end of classical liberalism as soon as you got government schools in. As soon as you got government schools in, that was the end of, gov of any kind of classical liberalism, any kind of free market. Because human beings are like ducklings. We bond with whoever raises us. And if it's not the free market that raises us, but government will bond with the government. And so because of government schools coming in 150 years ago, every single solution that most people have just involves the government. More government, bigger, run to the government, 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 right? And because government produces, and all violence produces the opposite of its stated goals, because people keep running to the government, they keep creating more problems, which has them program, they're programmed back to run to more government to solve the problems created by the last government programs, and then it escalates until collapse. And so... The one of the see oh well why is why are Europeans why 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 are people in the West why are uh, whites uh, why are they so down on themselves because they suck at being free because they programmed by government schools to run to the government whenever there's a problem and that means that everything that they do turns to crap and if everything I build falls down and takes a school full of children with it, I'm going to stop building, aren't I? <laughs> because I'm pretty horrible at, at doing it. And if everything that Europeans are trying to do keeps getting worse and worse because they keep running the government, of course they're going to run out of self-confidence as a culture. <laughs> the best I can, since every time I move, puppies die, I better stay still, <laughs> right? I mean, this is, you know. Right. I, I'm just never going to understand why smart people are so self-defeating and people with lower IQs are so ready to build an empire and set up a caliphate. And what is wrong with us? No, that's a, that's a big question. And I'm not even going to try and take a swing at it now, although that's certainly something I'll bookmark and I've talked about it before. But yeah, just look, just aim at being being right. And um, when you're right and you're publicly right, people will find you. You know, why is this show growing so enormously and so rapidly? Because we've been right. We've been right. And uh, when you are consistently right, not perfectly, of course, but when you're consistently right, and you're right a lot more often than you're wrong, eventually people will they start listening to you because they'll freak out. You know, the farmer who was right about 
planting the right crops at the right time, well, when everyone gets hungry, he's got a lot of friends, right? <laughs> right. Okay. All right. Thank you Thank very you. much for a great series of, uh, of questions. And uh, look forward to hearing from you again. Keep us posted about life on the front row of academia. <laughs> Thanks, Steph. Thanks, Jenna. Take care. You too. Freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. FDRURL.com slash Amazon to help us out with an affiliate link. And FDRpodcast.com. Just share it around. Like, subscribe, and share this if you happen to catch it on the Tube of Views, YouTube. And uh, just, you know, help people to understand how much fun and how challenging and exciting and dangerously edgy philosophy can be. Have yourself a wonderful week. We'll talk to you soon.